Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another installment of Down the Pub, uh, the last one for a little while because we're going to have a break after this because we hopefully will be sitting outside a real pub shit-faced. Um, yeah, we've had a rather amusing conversation before we got started, which has just prompted Marcus to write dildos in capital letters in the uh, chat function. Uh, be grateful you weren't around. Uh, we might release that for our Patreon people at some point um, if they want to be scarred for life. Uh, first and foremost, we have our one judge for tonight, and, and he truly is a specialist. Holmes? Am I the only one tonight? You are. You are omnipotent tonight. You are all-powerful. Oh, okay. Well, that's good. I mean, the, the good news is I wouldn't be able to come next week anyway because I am actually going to the pub next week. I've booked my Yay! table. Everything's in hand, so... Yeah. No, there is no part of me that wants to be in a pretend pub when the real pub around the corner is open next week. Yeah, I'm, I'm assuming there'll be less chat about sex toys for me next week, but there we go. Yeah, probably, but um, as Merrin points out in the chat function going on down the side of this conversation, uh, this is the only group where some your friends will actually correct your spelling of dildos, <laughs> plural. Merrin, <laughs> <laughs> how you doing? I'm all right. It's a four-day week. It was a four-day week last week. Bank holidays have this... um. Strange effectiveness, but yeah, I'm, I'm not doing too bad, thanks. Excellent. Right. Uh, who else have we got with us? We've got Marcus. Princess is with us. Uh, Princess, who now drinks Bucks Fizz for breakfast at his new job. Yeah, time for celebration. I can't say on record what that was yet because the press hasn't been released, but all's good. Survived a month in the new job, loving it. Still haven't even done the history yet. There's so much work to be done. Um, but looking forward to doing that and maybe avoiding some of the Tudor stuff. But some of the Stuart stuff looks, sounds really interesting. So Walter Riley's head. Excellent. Um, just clarify for the listeners, though, um, that the secret you're not allowed to talk about does not involve dildos. Uh, confirmed, it does not. I haven't seen the script yet, so actually, you know, we can leave it open. Um, yeah, it's, it's all good. It's all good. Life's good. I mean, I was very excited to see that uh, Porto was trending yesterday, but for the wrong reasons, I thought people were pre-ordering my book. No, it was Chelsea beating Porto. Uh, someone who has no idea what's going on in the world of European football because he supports Gillingham is Chris. Chris decided this week that it would be sensible to give himself a haircut. Well, there's nothing wrong with that, you say, trimming your own fringe. No, but then he decided to cut the back himself. Chris, how stupid do you feel on a scale of 1 to 10 right now? Probably about an, a 7 because that really isn't the stupidest thing I've ever done. <laughs> but it's up <laughs> there. <laughs> How stupid do you look right now? 
um, at the moment, from the front, I look good. Uh, well, I look all right. Um, just my usual gooberness. Uh, at the back, I kind of think I'm rocking a Henry V look. Yeah, well, Henry V, if he had an argument with a pair of garden shears. Maybe. Uh, Zach is with us, our baby-faced Napoleonic assassin. You all right, Zach? Yeah, I'm good, mate. I can't pretend I've been doing anything exciting other than um, being called a, a xenophobe because I don't like Napoleon. And he does represent every single European on the planet. But apart from that, just the, the same old, same old. I just have to say that if, if people have got issue with not liking French people, then they're not going to find many friends in England, are they? Well, no, but, you know, you can't account for the crazies, can you? No. And to be fair, you, you decided to get into Internet bed with them yourself. So <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not making any comments on that. Clive is with us as well. How are you, Alex? Uh, What's it like down south? Down south, uh, sunny and still boring. What about north of the river? I'm in self-isolation at the moment, which when everyone else is getting ready to go out and have fun, I'm completely locked up and can't even go out on a bike ride, which is terrific. Does that mean you're going to be sitting in the Mary Rose alone next week, just talking to yourself? I will be entertaining myself. And Heather. Heather's just raised her hand. <laughs> and Chris okay so it turns out that there's only two of us that want a week off from this oh my god everyone now has animated sunglasses and it's really creepy I don't know how that happened or why she also has a martini glass which I'm more jealous of Heather how is Ohio hi yeah hi. so you had snow last week and now you have 26 degrees celsius right yeah is this just Ohio yeah, it's it's one minute you have a snowstorm right after you just mow the lawn and shorts and a t-shirt, and then five minutes after you have the snowstorm, a tornado wipes it all away for you. Is that not just sorry? I mean, like we've had that this week, haven't we? Pretty much. I want to know though. Wisconsin has cheese. Yes. And. Idaho has potatoes, which, sorry, Idaho, but they were just potatoes. There wasn't anything awesome about them. What does Ohio have? Chemical pollution. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, fields. We have lots of fields. Anything interesting in them? More? Soybean, corn. Um... A simple no, no will <laughs> To be fair, though, Idaho do brag about their potatoes to the extent that they're on the number plates and they're not even that great. So more power to Ohio for just not being drama queens. Uh, we have Kit as well, who has pointed out that his hair has gone. He looks like something of crime watch. If you considered cutting your own hair like Chris. No, no, I haven't. <laughs> <laughs> I'm waiting until the hairdresser opens and on Monday morning, I'm going to go and get my hair sorted out. Brilliant. Uh, well, that's it. I mean, presumably Chris now has to wait for ages because he daren't take that into a barber. You need to let that grow out. Hey, that's never growing out. It's an inch shorter on some sides than it is. It's an inch shorter in the middle and on one end than it is, like, on the other side. It literally looks like he's been in a pub fight with Edward Scissorhands. Who cut the top off all of Chris's hair? <laughs> oh. <laughs> Burn. You wait till you get to 40. Yeah. <laughs> oh, fine. You're 40. Jesus, that was a rough paper <laughs> <laughs> says, says the man who's desperately tried to look 20 old, 20 years older than he actually is. That's lovely floral wallpaper in the background, by the way, Marcus. Uh, Kate, 
is in Gibraltar and she has no flowery wallpaper in the background. No. And someone at your job had the audacity to ask you if you knew what TikTok was, as if you were too old earlier on, didn't they? They did, yeah. It was yesterday and I'm still traumatised now. Um, bless her. I don't think she meant any harm, any malice by it, but um, she clearly thinks I'm old. And another girl, I work with quite young people, another girl um, mentioned olden times. And I was like, oh, okay, is that when I was young? And she said, no, no, when my mum was young. And I was like, oh, okay, how old's your mum? <laughs> I'm not saying. Uh, was she like five years older than you? A bit more than five, but um, not that much. Yeah. So I feel very, very middle-aged heading towards elderly this week. When we were all allowed to go to Spain, we all come and help you burn their houses down and get your own back. Thanks. Brilliant. And Lockie, Lockie's with us as well. Well, life's all right. We had our first proper rugby training session back with Biff and a fitness block yesterday. So I'm kind of in bits. But um, in other news, my laptop is at the shop getting repaired. It's not been impounded before anyone says anything. Um, <laughs> I, you know, So I'm off PhD work for a few days. Um, which means I have time to drink wine and prepare for stuff like this. So, yeah, change your pace. Excellent. Uh, Alina will be here at some point. She is running late with a pupil, and the last message I got from her just said, save me. Right, okay. Today we are discussing history's greatest historian. Um, we're just picking ourselves up, basically, aren't we? We're going to um, basically be talking about who in our little gang of historians, as in profession of historians, uh, is awesome throughout history, which is great because it kind of vindicates the shit life choices we've made in coming down this path, if everyone agrees. Boom. Okay, right, where shall we start tonight? I'm going to start with Zach. You look bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. Well, it makes a nice change, doesn't it? I have a curveball for the pub tonight because I'm about to make the case for a historian that very few people in the pub and even fewer of our listeners are going to have heard of. So why am I seemingly seemingly making a decision to fall on my sword right at the start? Well, I want to put it to you that fame is not necessarily the mark of the greatest historian. Caught in the limelight is not what our subject is about. Everyone in this virtual room knows that nobody puts pen to paper to write history in order to make their fortune and become a household name. A lucky few make it, but it's not the historian's name that is crucial. It's the substance. You're not not just about to nominate yourself here, are you? (laughs) No, no. Um, Although Marcus did urge me to, but, you know, that's that's a story for another time. Um, A lucky few do make it, but it's not the historian's name that's crucial. It's the substance, both of their work and of themselves as individuals. Some might say that being able to churn out a vast number of books is surely a sign of greatness. To master a subject so completely that you can write a a book a year and be able to walk into Waterstones and see your work arrayed on the shelves. Again, though, it's not the quantity, it's the substance that matters. It is virtually, and I emphasise the word virtually here, impossible to write a boring history book. That's not so that it doesn't take skill to write a good piece of history, but history itself provides the interest. So just enjoying someone's book isn't enough, in my opinion, at least. 
So if I'm not going to rate someone purely on their output or on whether I enjoyed their work, what am I going to use as the mark of a great historian? The first test is quality, the dreaded kind of so what of any book. Telling the story is important, but it's not enough. It takes, with the utmost of respect, relatively little skill to produce a narrative that quite simply rehashes the often repeated anecdotes that better researchers have dug out and published. A great historian will probe, ask the awkward questions and refuse to take anything at face value. That might seem simple, seem like an obvious point, but far too many fail at that hurdle. Because it's the meticulousness, that attention to detail, which admittedly makes historians social recluses, but also busts the myths and leads to the questions that matter. It is that process that leads to a book having impact, leaving the reader thinking differently about a topic than they did beforehand, not just understanding, but actively thinking for themselves, engaging with history as more than a passive consumer. But equally important is the actual personality, because that has a ripple effect. You can tell when a historian just loves the sound of their own voice, when they pontificate for pontification's sake, and when they couldn't be bothered because they thought they knew it all or were just trying to make a fast buck and read up on Wikipedia. Some of the most important books on the past are almost incomprehensible because the writer is so absorbed in demonstrating their own intellect that they write something that you'd need a dictionary to make sense of. But with the personality comes the passion, the willingness to be selfless in sharing your knowledge, to engage without showing off, to correct without being patronising. With the personality comes the ability to inspire. Getting all of that right is a rare thing. But if you can hit that sweet spot, you achieve something far more impressive than short-term fame. You can produce a piece of work so insightful, so important, and so defining for the period that you write on that it endures. Through the quality of their work, that ultra-rare breed of truly great historians can achieve a kind of immortality. So who fits this exacting list of attributes? We're going to hear some great contenders tonight. There are even some contenders in the pub this evening. And no, that's not me being sycophantic much. But I'm going to declare an unashamed bias in my choice because this one is deeply personal. I'm choosing the person who I effectively owe my academic career to, my dear friend and mentor, Roy Muir. As I said at the start, Roy is not a household name. He's not someone that you're likely to see on TV and his list of publications doesn't run into the hundreds. He's a Napoleonic researcher based in Australia and has devoted his life to writing specifically about Britain during the Napoleonic Wars. His first book, Britain and the Defeat of Napoleon, published in 1996, looked at politics behind the conflict, and it was important. I'll let others decide whether it classes as a game changer, but I think it is telling that it has since inspired others to look at the topic where before there was nothing. So from the outset, Rory was a kind of Napoleonic influencer, setting the tone for how we would look at the period over the course of the bicentenary decades. Next up was Tactics and the Experience of Battle in the Age of Napoleon, which again set the mould. Great work since has looked at the experience of soldiers in combat during this period, but Muir was the first to do it in a detailed, dedicated volume. In 2001, Muir took what looked like a bit of a risk by writing Salamanca 1812 on the famous battle of the same name. Battle books are massive fun but they usually do follow a kind of format. Describe what happened, reference a couple of interesting accounts, do some analysis of learning points, job done. 
Now, don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with that approach other than the obvious issues of fog of war, making it really hard to be 100 percent sure about how specific things actually unfolded. But, you know, that's life. That's history. Except that Rory decided it wasn't going to be just history. At the end of every chapter, unpicking the events of the battle, he then produced a separate detailed commentary on the surviving sources, looking at which accounts were credible, where the overlap and contradictions lay, and what was or wasn't feasible based on other available information from army lists all the way through to the the, uh, the topography of the battlefield. It remains a masterpiece. If you want to know how to write an authoritative, definitive battle study, Salamanca 1812 is genuinely the perfect template. But the thing that elevated Muir to the pantheon of all-time greats was his two-volume biography of the Duke of Wellington. That was a ballsy move. Technical historical term there, but it was a ballsy move. Elizabeth Longford produced a two-volume biography of Wellington. It was good, not faultless, but good. Muir blew it out of the water. Over the course of 1,800 pages, he took a microscope to everything we thought we knew about Wellington, one of the most written about people in history. In the process, he exploded a shed load of myths and made a number of surprising discoveries, not least Wellington's illegitimate kids, which history had quietly forgot. 1800 pages might sound like a chore, but oddly, it's really not. And the reason is that holy grail that I mentioned, that ability to communicate clearly, write engagingly, without pretentious language, but without sacrificing any of the historical rigour. If you want to know how to write a detailed, insightful, engaging book, pick up something by Muir. But that doesn't give you a sense of how much of a game changer this book was. Let me put it into perspective. There will never be another book on Wellington like it. It's not just an education on the Duke's life. It's an education on how to write history and how to write biography. There are a few books which come out that you can look at and genuinely say, people are going to read that in a 100 years' time. The Napoleonic Wars has a couple of them. Peninsular War historians still refer to the work of Charles Oman, written in the early 1900s. This will endure in the same way. Muir has, without any aspirations of intending to do so, achieved the historian's version of immortality. There is perhaps one thing that we shouldn't thank Rory for, though, He's the reason I'm sitting here talking to you as a historian, because Rory is, without question, one of the nicest people you will ever meet. He's like that kind of favourite uncle that families have, which is even more of an achievement, considering that many historians, myself included, are more like that weird uncle that families also have, who goes off on one um, about something that nobody's interested in, if you just kind of stop and say hello to them. A few people uh, nodding in the chat to kind of confirm that I am that bad. Rory and I have been on speaking terms since 2012, but in 2015 at a conference, he went on a mission to convince me I had what it took to do a PhD if I wanted to. Before that point, I didn't believe I had it in me, and without it, I would never have presumed to try. He didn't need to do that. He did it out of kindness, because he saw a baby-faced Napoleon nerd who he thought had potential, and he was willing to nurture that. Most people would probably rather that he hadn't. But quite frankly, that's their problem rather than mine. Brilliant. Um, I feel like we should ask Marcus is probably going to be your champion in the room for this, isn't he? Marcus, do you concur on this? It's hard because um, Yuri Muir is such, such a nice man. His work is fantastic. 
but he is in a really tough field. Um, so I'm not sure about greatest, but certainly for Napoleonic, uh, an authority, an incredibly knowledgeable and helpful uh, historian and certainly worthy of praise and not one that would normally be included. So I think it's a really good one to highlight. Also, the fact that his work is, you know, currently in publication and he's still currently researching. He's reachable on Twitter and is always responding to my questions. And I know he's much closer to Zach. So certainly up there, I'm not sure about I'm in. The, I think because he's so humble, probably wouldn't call him greatest. I don't actually think he'd probably want that kind of attention. He's quite uh, self-deprecating. So um, that might be the only the only flaw in Zach's argument. He doesn't want to be great. He's he's not. He's not some sort of dictator that Andrew Roberts is going to worship. <laughs> boom. Oh, boom. boom. Uh, isn't he written like a book about why uh, Napoleon is awesome? It's, it's literally it's called, called Napoleon, Napoleon the Great. The Great. <laughs> <laughs> Holmes, you're the one he's got to impress with this argument. This is quite tricky, actually. The whole thing is quite tricky because it's all, you know, basically your interpretations of other people's interpretations, whereas everything in the past has at least had some basis in fact. And I'm guessing most of the historians I'm going to hear about, I'm not going to be familiar with their work either. So it's kind of tricky, really. Um, I like the fact he seems like a nice bloke. I like the fact that he put the separate detailed review of sources at the end of those chapters. I thought that was a really great and useful thing. I mean, but I'm, I'm sort of, in my mind, I, and I get the point Zach made about um, it should be quality and not quantity. But also I think... Part of assessing this, it should be on the ability to sort of educate the masses to a certain degree, which I don't know if this necessarily hits the criteria. And obviously there's a bit of it, me that says Zach is massively biased and not being entirely objective with this as well. <laughs> <laughs> but I think I'm going to be looking, I think the, the ability to explain and educate the masses, I think is going to be important to a certain degree, depending on what everybody else comes with. And I don't mean obvious people who pop up on telly all the time talking about one thing one week and one thing the other. That's not what I'm looking for. But you know, dressing up. Yeah. <laughs> Very much dressing up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> More importantly, Zach, was there a flash of kneecap then? Uh, there was. I'm channeling my inner Beth tonight. I, I've got the knees out. I've got some chocolate. Marcus is looking far more excited than normal. So uh... now you've got to get really pissed. Yeah, you need to drink <laughs> a, a half a port about every ten minutes. Yeah. <laughs> a bottle of Merlot and just knees oh. above the camera. Poor bit. I've, yeah, I've never seen Marcus this animated. Normally when we record sharpshooters, he's just... You never have your knees out of sharpshooters. Yeah, look at that. Look at that you knee. Got, you, you have a blazer on. We, you do sharpshooters. We get very twee. We're, very, we're posh kits. Marcus, look, he's got a kneecap out right now. Marcus's camera's going to go off in a minute. Uh, right, okay. <laughs> I suspect that not all of the historians we look at today are going to be alive, which is going to make Holmes' life slightly more easier. Uh, because, Merrin, who are you going to go with? Well, the greatest historian. As Zach says, the extent or not of the limelight is one thing, but putting the spotlight on one man or woman a great output and renown is something else. And I agree, it may indeed be the substance and influence that matters. But Zach pinpointed the real problem here with all the precision of a man obsessed with the back end of a donkey and not in a good way. How do we measure the mark of a great historian? I'm going to pursue this for a moment. By aptitude or approach, we might cite Herodotus, father of history, 
or even Thucydides or Suetonius, Tacitus, Livy, even Ptolemy the Saviour or Ptolemy I Claudius. Little Roman joke for you if you're following at the back. These are all men who, it is indisputable, have helped to turn the concept of history itself into something more widespread. Something that everyone can connect with, while also including their own opinions about what happened in what today we can would consider to be subversive writing styles, suggestion, innuendo, implication and insinuation, none of which are a good look if preservation of the truth is in any way important in an ability to reflect on and of the past. So what is the definition of a great historian? Is it, as Holmes infers, something to do with quality, not quantity? Surely, intrinsically, then, the further back we go, the harder it is to be sure that a man or woman could do the work that merits the nature great historian. Believe it or not, there was no Wikipedia in Roman times. You'll make staunch cases tonight, I have no doubt. I would like us in some ways to think about more modern opportunities. Leopold von Rank, for instance, father of modern academic history, the man who established the notion of a historical seminar and set the standards for today's historical writing by introducing such ideas as reliance on primary sources, empiricism, and involving Auschenpolitik, the narrative history and international political perspective without which war is just bows and arrows. But there is more to history than warfare. Ban Zhao, for example, was a female Chinese historian, philosopher and politician who gave us the Han Shu, the official dynastic history of the Western Han. Thirteen generations of historical fact, war and warts and all. At the time, she was also China's most famous female scholar and an instructor of Taoist sexual practices for the imperial family. But that's by the by. Intrinsically, a great purveyor of history. Pamphila of Epidaurus. An Egyptian woman lived in Greece during the reign of Emperor Rhaenyra. She gave us commentaries, 33 books of miscellaneous historical anecdotes. She wrote epitomes on the works of other historians and she wrote books on sex. But anyway, let's come back to the point. Perhaps we need to turn to someone more modern like Ted Edward Hallett Carr, better known as E.H. Carr, who vehemently opposed Rank's ideas of empiricism as being naive, boring and outmoded, saying that historians, great historians, did not merely report facts. They chose which facts they used. Does that make them great or does it make them flawed from the outset? Carr also contributed to the foundation of what's now known as classical realism in historical relationships. He studied Thucydides and Machiavelli as well. And he reflected on deep epistemological disagreements with idealism in its original form. He came up with historical realism. What actually happened? Don't get me started on Carl. The point is this. As a critic, how can we know who is a great historian? What do we know to be true? Who makes you the man? According to Carr, not even historians escape their own subjective experience. I do not disagree. As disciples go, I'd rather be an unknown apostle of Carr than a rank outsider any day. But even Carr's epistemological prowess on the matter, per se, does not make him the great historian. However, his expansion on what is history gives us a very good framework against which to nominate the greatest historian. A great historian, for my part, is someone who is intrigued by 
searches for and then presents the past in a way that prioritizes integrity of all the facts that are available at the time and is open to challenge on his or interpretation, his or her interpretation of those same facts and is committed to communicating those events in a way that then makes them accessible to the greatest number of people in the future. It involves curiosity and duty, precision, sincerity, amenability and style, clarity and vigour, as Zach said. But is it enough to specialise in one arena or do we need to consider the influence of the man themselves or the woman themselves on the many themes being discussed? At this point, many modern day names come to mind as nominations. Evans, Kershaw, Macmillan, Apthaka, Arias, Aromatico, Chadra, Genovese, Mansell, Shira, Sharma, Abulafia, Starkey, Meads, Jonathan Meads, Trevelyan, Ormeron, John Julius Norwich, Martin Gilbert, even Anthony Beaver or Hugh Redwall, Trevor Roper. You know, in a game of top trumps within this framework, we could now even play Dan Snow off against Danny Dyer. One offering the widest range of references, the other a dispenser of bygone fact and fiction in historical pursuit of his own heritage and past. Give me the scores, please. Round one, who presents facts with most integrity? Who appeals most to the masses? Who engages most with the masses? Who is open to empirical challenge and who is most likely to nut you if you mess about with the footnotes? I am going to choose, with reticence, just one historian who cannot be a footnote in history. Edward Gibbon, the father of modern history as we perceive it now, a member of parliament and a writer whose most important work, The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, was published in six volumes between 1776 and 1788. At the time and since, it has been acknowledged as the greatest work of history ever written by an Englishman. It traced the evolution of Western civilization, Islamic and Mongolian conquest, it ran the gamut from the height of the Roman Empire through to the fall of Byzantium. Gibbon was known for the blended quality and irony of his prose, his use of primary sources and his polemical criticism of not only the characters, but the catalysts and context of the subject he was discussing. He was never content with secondhand accounts when primary sources were there for the taking. I have endeavoured, he said, to draw from the fountainhead that my curiosity, as well as my sense of duty, urges me to study the originals. And if they sometimes elude my search, then I carefully mark the secondary evidence on whose faith a passage or fact I am then reduced to depend. In this insistence upon the importance of primary sources, Gibbon is now considered to be, by many, one of the first modern historians and therefore nominated for the greatest historian. Did he fail to anticipate the French Revolution? Yes. But as he himself said, prophecy is not the historian's job. Did he hold priest-ridden superstitious Middle Ages in contempt? Yep. Who doesn't? Go Tudors. His remarks on Christianity aroused particularly vigorous attacks. Indeed, he began an ongoing controversy about the role of Christianity. He was open to the idea his work was going to be challenged. He welcomed that. He defended his work, but he welcomed challenge. He was detached, he was dispassionate, he was enthusiastic and yet critical of his own work. 
Even Churchill, historian in his own right, said, I set out upon Gibbon's decline and fall and was immediately dominated and influenced both by the story and the style. I devoured Gibbon. I rode triumphantly through it from end to end and enjoyed it all. He modelled much of his own literary style on Gibbon's and like Gibbon, he dedicated himself to producing a vivid historical narrative ranging widely over period and place and enriched by analysis and reflection. And isn't that what we want from history? Throughout history, some historians have changed our perceptions of the world. They have transformed the way we see ourselves and each other. They have inspired debate and dissent, informed doctrine and shaped the progress of political intent, social reform and indeed warfare. They have enlightened, outraged, provoked and comforted, destroyed lives and enriched them and imparted knowledge in a way that makes us challenge what we perceive now to be historical accuracy. However, Without the work of this one man, we would not have a benchmark by which to measure the presentation of historical fact today. For that reason, I nominate the Supreme Historian of the Enlightenment, Edward Gibbon. Well done. Uh, Marcus is feeling slightly intimidated now. <laughs> He's just nodding like, yeah, just pour yourself another drink. You can't outword her, is what she does for a living. No, she's, she's good with the words. She knows yeah. the best words. She's good with, like, how to say shit and that. I'm terrible with maths, mate, but I'm all right with me words. <laughs> In it. Holmes, is this more what you were thinking of? I think so. I mean, it is nice of Mary to give a shout out to Alan Shearer for midway through that as well. That's going kind of a bit of a surprise to us all, I think. But, um, <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I like the fact that he's, you know, the primary sources thing I think is important and is obviously very important for historians today. Um, you mentioned that um, he didn't mind being challenged. Um, are there examples of him being challenged? And could you t- tell us about those? And how everybody, he- everybody challenged him. He he castigated religion. He he went through religion and went, it's crap, it's crap, it's great. He he had very diverse opinions, which he wasn't afraid of surfacing and challenging and trying to find primary sources to prove what was or wasn't possible in the religious world. And everybody, I mean, at, at the time, everybody went, you, you can't do this. Religion is what keeps us together. It's what keeps us from going to war. And he pushed back. And he said, I can. The whole purpose of having faith is to challenge faith is to find reassurance in exploring the facts. And, and that's history for me. It's finding reassurance in exploring facts. Excellent. Um, yeah, I feel you've sent a be- set of benchmark there, uh, along with Gibbons. Alina's in the house. You're right, Alina? Yeah, I finally stopped teaching and can sit down and do nothing. I haven't replied to anybody apart from you all day because I've just been... Fucked, really. Given that nobody knows exactly when we're recording or who you've been teaching, uh, did you finish without murdering any of them? Actually, today I had a really good day with students. There were some smart kids, and even my silly one was actually pretty good. He was, to be fair, it was his birthday, so I think that's why he was well behaved. So, otherwise, no cake. So you're only in it for the cake, is what you're saying? Dude, I'd be in it for anything if people bought me cake. I'll do anything for cake. Well, not now because I can't eat gluten, but. Be glad you weren't here 20 minutes ago when Kit was, like, pornographically eating a pizza in front of the saw. Oh, my God, no. If anybody eats food, I'm out of here. I'm yeah. going. At, at Alex's request, I want to point yeah. that out. No, no, absolutely. It was <laughs> sexual. Not quite as sexual as Chris's new haircut, but, yeah. Did you lick it? Uh, I may have done. <laughs> right. What, okay. the back of Chris's head? 
No, just my screen. Ooh. Just my screen <laughs> when Kit was eating that pizza. Right, okay. Zach's choking. Uh, where shall we go next? Let's do... Oh, let's make Alina go next. Um, let's go to Heather next, because Heather is going to go hundreds and hundreds of years in another direction. Got me with a starburst in my mouth, sorry. I'm doing my uh, best historian on uh, Publius Cornelius Tacitus. He was a Roman historian and politician who lived between AD 56 and possibly 120. Jury's still out on when he actually really died. But uh, he lived through the the Silver Age of Latin literature. Um, He had a reputation for brevity and compactness of his Latin prose and an in-depth knowledge of the psychology of power politics. He also loved hunting and being outside. His early life, um, we don't really know much about it. He mentions bits and pieces in his writings and um, some of his letters to his friends like Pliny the Younger um, have little snippets of it. Um, There's also an inscription at Milesa in Caria. I'm going to butcher stuff I can't pronounce, sorry. Um, He came from an equestrian family and um, he basically says himself that he owes his life to the, the Flavian Empire's. Uh, as most of the aristocratic families did not um, survive the prescriptions. Um, he married Julia Agricola, who was the daughter of Gnaeus Julius Agricola. No one knows if he had any kids, but um, his public life is very interesting. He studied rhetoric in Rome to prepare for a career in law and politics. Um, his career started under Vespasian, and he entered politics as a quaestor under Titus. Um, he became a praetor in, in 88, and then became a quindeciember, uh, or member of the priestly college in charge of the sibling books and the secular games. Um, he survived Domitian's reign of terror, but was ashamed at what he saw as complicity. Um, his, his experience of the tyranny, corruption, and decadence of Domitian's rule left him very bitter, jaded, and hating tyranny, which is very evident in his works. Um, he became a suffect council in 87 during Nerva's reign and, um, achieved his height of fame as an orator by de- delivering the funeral oration for the famous veteran soldier, Luci- Lucius Virginius Rufus. Um, it was in the same year as he did his, um, his funeral oration, he wrote and published, um, his Agricola and Germania, um, books, uh, the year after um, he quit politics, but came back during Trajan's reign in, uh, 98. And, um, he and a friend of his, Pliny the Younger, also a historian, um, prosecuted Marius Priscus, um, who was the proconsul of Africa for corruption. Priscus was found guilty and exiled. He then exited politics and law again while he wrote his histories and the annals, annals, excuse me. He returned again because he couldn't just quit the politics as uh, governor of the Roman province of Asia in Western Anatolia, which is the highest civilian governorship you can obtain. Um, his writing is very dense prose, um, frequently pessimistic, um, into the accounts of the psychology of power politics with straightforward descriptions of events, moral lessons, and tr- tightly focused dramatic retellings. Um 
he paid very close attention to his sources and frequently discusses the balance of power between the Senate and the emperors and the increased corruption of the governing class and how they adjusted to the ever-growing power and wealth of the empire as it grew and grew. Um, he exposed hypocrisy and dissimulation in his works, uh, showcase the power, the danger of power without accountability, the love of power untampered by principles and the apathy and corruption engendered by the concentration of wealth generated through trade and conquest. He both criticizes and praises his subjects while writing about them, noting more admirable and less admirable characteristics. He refrained from conclusively taking sides for or against a person and notes the increasing reliance of the empire of Rome, emperor of Rome, excuse me, on his armies to maintain his position. Um, his two major works, which were the annals, annals, excuse me, the annals, you spell check for changing that for me. I appreciate it. Um, I know the history is a different book, Heather. Yeah, yeah, apparently. I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure Chris can lend you a copy. <laughs> Chris, can you please? His final work was the uh, Annals. Got it right this time. And um, there was at least 16 books in this collection. Um, books 7 through 10 and parts of 5, 6, and 11 in the second half of book 16 are missing. And um, But book 6 ends with the death of Tiberius, and books 7 through 12 are supposed to cover the... Uh, reigns of Caligula and Claudius. Um, the remaining books cover Nero, and um, we do not have any record of the work on Augustus in the beginnings of the early Roman Empire. No, none of it survived. Um, the histories explore the reigns of Tiberius, Claudius, Nero, and the emperors who reigned in the year of the four emperors, which was Galba, Otho, Vitellus, and Vespasian, as well as the civil wars during that year. It spanned the history of the Roman Empire from the death of Augustus in 14 AD to 70 AD in the first Jewish-Roman War, which took place in 66 to 73. Only four books in the first 26 chapters of Book 5 survive, which is basically year 69 in the first part of 70. It was supposed to cover up to the death of Domitian in 96. He also wrote Germania, which is the monograph on the lands and tribes of Germania outside of the Roman Empire. Um, it dealt with lands, laws, customs of various tribes, and even describes particular tribes, um, which were the ones living closest to the Roman Empire, to those who lived along the Baltic Sea. And his other work, the Agricola, recounts the life of his father-in-law, uh, Gnaeus Julius Agricola, uh, who was an eminent Roman general, and it briefly covers the geography and ethnography of ancient Britain and consequence concentrates mostly on the conquest of Britannia. Um, it also eloquently attacks the greed of Rome and his last um, work is the Dialogus, which is the dialogue of the art of rhetoric. So that I would say he deserves to be a uh, best historian due to his works and how in depth he was and the, how um, he wanted to have the proper sources as well. Brilliant. And ancient world history is something, I mean, that you talk about Gibbons setting the bar. This is the first time that anyone sort of, we're going beyond the oral history period, aren't we? And people remembering things as being passed down and people actually writing stuff down. So I don't know, Alina, you love ancient shit. How important is Tacitus? Ancient shit? Yeah. 
All that toga crap. They're all friggin' important. They all bring something to the table at the end of the day, because without them, we wouldn't know shit. I mean, to be fair, we only know about people that were, like, the top of the hierarchy, the elite. We don't know much about what happened to the people down below. I mean, that's what we really wanted down below. <laughs> wow. Okay. Anyway, um, yeah. Down below the anals. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) I blame you, Heather. You started me on being dirty so early in the evening as well. Check you out. But yeah, no. That's um, that's that's so much of what they can tell us. Really, it's kind of sad because I'd like to know what Joe Bloggs down the street did, rather than frigging I don't know, Claudius or one of them idiots. Not that Claudius was an idiot, but I was going to say I thought you liked Claudius. I do like Claudius. Cicero. <laughs> you there you go. Go. Seven fifty-seven, and Heather is inspiring filth already. Holmes. Yes. <laughs> yeah, this this is a tricky one for me. I, I've got a couple of questions, which is probably going to show my own ignorance, up, really. But how, how did they? They sort of, as a historian, he would have done bodies of work. But how did he sort of communicate those bodies of work? How could people? How could he get his message across? Um. He wrote books and also did a lot of oration. He was he was known for his um, oration skills as being very in-depth and very charged. And you could definitely follow everything he was saying. So it was not flowery. He told basically what he saw as the truth, what you needed to know. And was succinct about it. And when, he, he wrote, when, he, when you say he wrote books, was that sort of like in sort of medieval, medieval sort of monk type writing book? So he, he, there was no printing press, of course, by this time. So it would, everything would have been had to be done by hand. Probably. Um, they did have a lot of scribes who would um, basically just rewrite the books, which I'm calling books. They're probably more like scrolls. Um, they would copy them down and it, they would be distributed throughout the land and probably library of Alexandria before it burned. And then you mentioned as well that he, he insisted on using original sources, but what, yes. what were they? Do we know what they are? What, what they were? Um, I'm assuming it was like, it was scrolls of um, something somebody had written that maybe was like an eyewitness or um, talking to people who maybe have been there if it wasn't too old. And then also, this is my final question. Again, it's probably going to make me look a bit stupid. But was was he writing about events in the past, or was he just writing about events, contemporary events there and then, which historians, subsequent historians, have gone back to look at his work at? Um, some of it was a little bit in the past, but a lot of it he was actually living through at the time. Um, he says that he was very, very lucky that he survived the prescriptions because he was writing about the people who were in charge at the time. So it could have gone very, very badly, but thankfully it didn't, which is why he said he um, owes his life to the Flavian emperors. And then he did, he spent half his time being a politician as well, didn't he? And then going back and then writing a bit more, then going back to be a politician. Couldn't quit, just couldn't do it. Okay, nothing further from me. Excellent. Let's do one more before we all um, break for booze basically i want to i want to hear chris's <clears throat> Arky-dokey. um right um much like everyone else i'm gonna have a bit of a preamble uh and outline the criteria that i think makes a good historian 
And for me, there are uh, three boxes that need ticking. The first two come under passion for the subject. You can't have a dull, workmanlike approach to your craft, as if it's just another day at the coalface. And that the next work is simply just to pay the water bill uh, next month, which coincidentally <clears throat> needs paying. Um, you have to be excited. And more importantly, you need to be able to excite and intrigue the, um, the people who read your subject and, and draw people in. Um, you've also got to be skilled at what you do, uh, where um, where to look things up, do your research and back up your assertions rather than just plug in the gaps with Wikipedia and hope that no one notices. <laughs> so those are the, the three points I'm, I'm going with. Um, so who, who deserves to get it? Well, obviously, I could look at Marder or Massey or Corbett or Hoyt, all big names in the study of naval history. And I don't mean boats that are made of wood and held together with good wishes. I'm talking about steel, iron, 15-inch shells, coal-fired. But that would be far too predictable. And I promised on Easter Monday that I would bring a touch of family history to, uh, to my presentation this week. So my story goes back to 1914 and two brothers from Essex, a police constable named Walter and a sailor by the name of Henry. Both lads survived the war, got married and had a son each. Walter's son, Peter, would train to be a chemist before becoming a policeman and would gain a passion for three things in life, sausages, rum and history, notably Napoleonic history in the Peninsular War. And all of these loves he passed on to his grandson, who is currently boring the crap out of you right now. But I'm not I'm nowhere anywhere near that kind of epicness. I'm going to instead talk about Henry's son, Eric, who was born in 1926. Who had, he had an excellent showing at Westcliff School for Boys. He received a bursary to go to Corpus Christi College at Cambridge at the age of 16. And like his cousin, went to serve on in the intelligence corps in the Second World War. And if family legend is to be believed, he was outside the King David Hotel when it blew up. Uh, he moved to the civil service and, like myself and Alex, used his work time responsibly to write his books. He wrote volumes on the works of Schumann and Brahms, uh, the motifs, style and, um, and the musicology. But he, his main love was, was the history of Shakespeare. And he wrote hundreds of articles on the subject of Shakespeare and his two noteworthy books. The aptly named The Real Shakespeare, Retrieving the Early Years, and the unfinished and imaginatively titled The Real Shakespeare, Retrieving the Later Years. But I'm, I'm afraid I'm, I'm not a borger. Um, I don't enjoy nepotism. And although Eric is family, uh, that branch of the family never kept in contact with us. Uh, Pop said he was an awful child. That might have been because Pop and his other cousins were throwing Eric in the river at the time. But um, so... I'm not even that interested in Shakespeare or musicology. So I'm abandoning my choice halfway through because it's, it's purely bollocks. And so I'd rather go on to talk about someone more deserving, someone that I am interested in. So let's talk about Alina. <laughs> let's just wait for the five pound notes to shift between people. Um, Alina embodies all of what history is for me, passion for the subject and telling people about it. And you can see it in her eyes when, when they light up when she talks about Auschwitz or the Warsaw Uprising. I know she gets a ribbing on here for always erring towards Polish history or the Holocaust, but let's be honest, we've all learned something. Uh, bringing Polish history into the English-speaking sphere is a, la is a labour of love, and all of us who know her know how hard she works and how driven towards educating people, um, whether it's on Twitter, down the pub, Pole Position, or even the Auschwitz podcast. Moreover, it's infectious. I mean, who else has found themselves reading up on Polish history and even writing pieces? Anyone? Just me? Oh, okay. <clears throat> Moving on. As I said, 
passion and interest is one thing, uh, but making it accessible is another. And yet again, Alina punches through and the, um, this to a degree many established historians can only dream of. Gibbon's uh, Fall of the Roman Empire. Sorry, Marin. Yawn. Hosking's History of Russia, 1900 to 1991, literally put me to sleep. And the Iliad, somewhat impenetrable. Winston Churchill, the only book I have ever got so angry with, I have thrown it across a room. I'm sorry, but um, Alina hits the nail on the head with making her information accessible and interesting. And as I said earlier, inspiring people to want to know more. Her work is well-researched and detailed. She knows where to find what she's looking for and make a steady and balanced argument, even assisting friends into, into finding information on projects such as Jewish scientists at Auschwitz for Kit. She wouldn't be where she was. She wouldn't. She wouldn't be where she is or doing what she is doing um, if she had the slapdash "it will do" approach that I have half the time. Her only detractors are the only are only attracted to the subject as Holocaust deniers and anti-Semites, rather than critics of her work. And she handles them with such dignity and grace, despite um, the, some of the truly awful things that they said to her. Um, when, if it were me, I would just tell them to jog on. So, in summary, you can keep Herodotus, Peeps, even Marder and Hoyt. I think Alina is truly the greatest. You ask kisser. I just <laughs> point out that the dignified response comes after she's text or rung me screaming like a banshee uh, and saying everything she'd like to say to their faces. Uh, it's not so dignified a response then, is it, Alina? Oh, my God. <laughs> I went to go and stir soup and then I heard this. I was like, oh my God, I've got to come back. <laughs> I thought, yeah, I was like, her camera's gone off. This will be devastating for him if he does this and she's gone for a shit or something. No, because I've got <laughs> the kitchen's like right there so I can come. <laughs> no, you're I'm right. I'm pleased for you, Chris, that that was the case. <laughs> I'm not dignified when it comes to texting Alex going, who the fuck is this prick? Why the hell is he accusing me of being a racist? So, yeah. <laughs> My my response is always because it's a knob, because it's a knob, because it's a knob. Uh, Holmes, are you convinced on this argument? I mean, it's slightly unusual. For a start, he was going on about his family members. He was even got to the point of trying to Google that um, real Shakespeare title to see if they existed, and then they do. I suddenly saw where it was going. I mean, so in a way, it's like instead of reviewing a proper pitch, it's like reviewing a plea for courtship, which is slightly. It's probably the first time anyone's ever going to say the phrase, her eyes light up when people mention Auschwitz, which is probably not. <laughs> or the Warsaw Uprising. Don't, don't forget that, John. Yeah. Party. yeah. The, the, Holmes, there's one other thing that you're missing from the family references. Chris's family probably killed some of Alina's. Oh no. <laughs> uh, Definitely invaded no. at some stage. No comment. Not from Essex. <laughs> <laughs> But, I mean, I think, I mean, in all seriousness, obviously Alina's not going to win, but I think the point, points Chris made of Ali is very knowledge, knowledge about the Holocaust and puts it over in a really interesting fashion. I mean, I, I, given the nature of the subjects, it must be so easy to just get bogged down in the doom and gloom. I mean, it's a bit like the First World War that we're, us, you know, you, you Lockie and I are, Familiar, familiar with it. I get slightly fed up with people in the First World War going, well, it's so futile. Why did it all have to happen? Because it's a really simplistic take on it. And obviously imagine that's far worse in terms of Auschwitz so it's, and the Holocaust. So it's great that she can cut through all of that and actually, you know, let us know what happened and how various people were treated. And there's the science example, for example, that you gave us. So yeah, I, I'd be surprised if it wins, but I think the points were well made and well merited. 
Hey, as usual, we've been having a really improper conversation in the break. Uh, Alina has has finally uh, stopped gushing now. After Chris basically kissed her ass uh, shamelessly, I think we should go to Alina next. Just for fun, right? Yeah. Just for fun. Right. Actually, I want to start with a story that actually starts with you and me, because I can't remember exactly what you said. So when you... when you we had a really great historian come on board to talk to us about this very person, right? And when they contacted us, Alex sent me a message. Going, There's some ancient historian in there, and she like she's about hither the hither. I just can't pronounce the guy's name. I don't know who the hell it is. Do you remember that? That sounds like my response to every ancient podcast that comes our way. But it turned out to be a really good podcast, actually. Um, so I'm going to talk about. Facilities. So I'm about to shit on someone in this room. I'm really sorry if this person has already gone. Um, love you very much, person I'm going to shit on. But I think Thucydides is the best historian that has ever lived because he is the first historian to actually use proper sources. Sorry, Herodotus. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think anyone is doing him. Everything has a smutty connotation now. Is anyone doing Herodotus tonight? Um. Yes, I am. Oh, okay, Kate is. I thought someone might. Continue crapping on Kate, Alina. I'm really sorry, Kate. I love you very much and I respect you, but I am totally going to shit on your parade. So what do you always do? (laughs) (laughs) A little bit about Thucydides, Herodotus. My God, I was going to start about Herodotus there, starting to get confused. Chris, you've confused me. I don't know what I'm doing anymore. Yeah, Chris. (laughs) (laughs) good tactic it's like when I show cleavage to try and distract you anyway Thucydides what do we know about him well we don't know very much about his uh, his early life we do know that his father's name was Honorus um and his family came from Thrace and their family owned a gold mine which probably gave him the advantage of becoming a historian because he could just sit on his ass and collect everything, just exactly what we want to be able to do. Sit on our asses and do history all day and have money coming in. So there we go. Point one to why he is already the best historian. He was born in Athens during the plague in 4030 BC. He survived a plague, ladies and gentlemen. He survived a plague. He was given command of a fleet, uh, but he was exiled after he didn't get to a city in time to save it from the Spartans. So therefore, you are shit, you are exiled. That's not nothing to do with historianing. That is to do with him being a human being. So I have a quote, which I've totally decided to not be prepared for. Uh, the quote is, <laughs> oh my God, I'm so... See, Chris, this is what you've done. You've made me go all over the place. Right, okay. <laughs> uh, I've lost the freaking quote. Chris, have you ever had such an effect on a woman? <laughs> Usually it's vomiting and running. <laughs> also, Chris, in, in the in the past when you've chatted people up, do you always tip, tip in that story about your uncles first as well? Just about yeah. <laughs> It's a good opener. He can oh, probably, don't. He can a good opener. <laughs> What's opening now, what? Alina, have you got your quote? No, I can't find All that. right, continue being smutty while she looks for her quote. I still want the answer to the question. Does Alina prefer ginger people or bald people? Why does that have anything to do with it? Because it's when he goes to the hairdressers and they say, shall I just fucking shave this off so you can start again? He knows what to say. Are we talking about upstairs or downstairs? 
can't find this. Classy Chris. It always brings the class. <laughs> it's it's trimmed into the shape of a family show. It's uh, it's trimmed into the shape of a dreadnought downstairs. I thought we all knew that. <laughs> You know, my daughter listens to this as well sometimes. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> Did, was there any so. when she went home and uh, told your ex-wife about your new girlfriend? Um, I don't know if she has or not. I'm not seeing her till Monday. Because uh, frankly, that's why everyone's tuned in today to find out. <laughs> <laughs> All right, okay, I found it. I found it. <laughs> oh, no, we want to talk about Chris's pubes more. <laughs> Chris's pubes? What? He's a quote. See, I can say it now. So I found the quote. So while he was in exile, Thucydides wrote, It was my fate to be in exile from my country for 20 years after my command at um, Amphopolis and being present with both parties, Athens and Sparta, and more especially with the Peloponnesians by reason of my exile, I had to leisure to observe affairs more closely. What are you showing, Marcus? Stop distracting me. I'm trying to talk to Zach. Anyway. <laughs> it's distracting. So he basically was exiled for, tw- for 20 years. Um, and then this time, this is when he managed to work put his history collection together. Um, he began writing and and revising the evidence that he had. So he actually went out there and collected various different for, for, for forms of evidence. So he actually writes a history book about the Peloponnesian War, which was between Athens, his lovely Athens, and Sparta. The book, again, the history of the Peloponnesian War. Not very creative, but lo and behold. He combines very, very many sources to create a one-person narrative. And we're talking about like 400 and something BC here, people. So this is quite uh, innovative for this time period. He writes a note when he wants to sort of state that the source that he's used is what he's writing about, like the gist of what somebody said. Or, funny enough, what someone should have said but didn't. Uh, Pericles' speech is is, is a prime example. So let's come down to the Herodotus bashing. Why is Thucydides different than Herodotus? Even though they're from roughly about the same time, Herodotus writes and references the gods. Well, Thucydides actually doesn't. He sits there and he writes the raw history, obviously, even though sometimes it's kind of manipulated, but it's still the raw history. It's there. He doesn't kind of faff about with God stuff. And he kind of looks at the events in terms of the human causes, what the humans actually did, not the effects of what the gods. I did air quotations. Nobody can like, see me. This is this is going on a history hack T-shirt. Herodotus faffing about with god stuff. <laughs> I'm sorry, Kate. Please don't hate me. <laughs> oh, oh, I do. I do. Mm-hmm. Look, look, look. I'm going to lay this out really quickly. Herodotus is also a fucking <laughs> awesome historian. Right. Mm-hmm. So I'm just shitting on him because, well, first of all, I can. And second of all, I kind of want to win. So I'm paying you. Because you need to shit on my guy to make the shitty seem good. Exactly. OK, good. Cool. Because I don't shit on your guy. You can shit on my guy. No, but I don't need to. Can we <laughs> stop with the cat fest and uh, what's it called? Scat stuff. And uh, move, <laughs> stick to the history, please. Sorry. Anyway. This is like in the playground. My dad could be up your dad. No, my dad could be up your dad. So he ends up gathering 
uh, his own evidence, unlike Herodotus. And um, the downside is his book actually stops because he dies. He writes eight books and he kind of like dies in the middle of the Peloponnesian War. So there are other historians that take on the narrative of what happens. Not as well as he does, obviously, because Thucydides is is number one here. His genius really isn't recognised up until the first century BC. And funny enough, lo and behold, guess who kind of recognises him? I don't know if this is kind of a good thing. Cicero. Asshole Cicero. In the first century BC, he writes that Thucydides is the greatest historian of all time. He is then translated many, 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 many years later. And we all know if you study ancient Greek history, everyone knows who he is. Um, what I actually find really interesting that was brought up is that could Herodotus have actually been a woman? There is a theory by historians that Herodotus could have been a woman. It wasn't actually Herodotus. Herodotus was the pen name of his daughter. So there is a possibility that Herodotus, far-fetched theory, that Herodotus was a woman. Um, and also I just want to underline that he did write a contemporary history of events that he actually lived through, unlike very many historians of this time period, and we're even talking about ancient Rome. He actually lived through this. He wrote what he saw, who he met, and gathered evidence. So that is why I think Thucydides is the best historian. But then he died before he finished, right? But he died before he finished. Okay, just checking, just checking, because my guy guy wrote about stuff he lived through and he didn't, so... No. We just we just don't know why he died either. If that's um what Cli- what Holmes is about to ask Clive Jesus, Holmes is about to ask me. We don't know how he died. There's no 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 evidence. Holmes, are you sold on the guy who wrote half a history book and then died? Uh, not massively. And just for the record, I wasn't <laughs> going to ask Clive about it either. Um, <laughs> um, I mean, it's interesting that his parents own a gold mine. You know, I mean, a, a rich family that allowed him to concentrate on history. It's a pity there's not any sort of modern day examples of this type of character, isn't it, really? God, I wish. Um, and also, I, I, I couldn't pronounce his name first. I kept, I kept hearing you say facilities, which confused me a little bit, but then I think I got it. Facilities. I got it, I got it in the end. I mean, what, I, what I, it's a bit like Heather's candidate, isn't it? And it, was he writing, he was writing about, con- Tem- he was writing about modern day events just at the time, wasn't he? Contemporaneously. He yes. wasn't writing about, you know, what had gone before, so to speak. And, and I know people keep saying that, um, um, again, like Heather's chat, but that they use primary sources, but have these actually been verified or is this just something this we're just taking and repeating? Do the primary sources hold up? Can we identify the primary sources now? No, not not really. It's like <laughs> a really long time in the future past. Jesus, I can't talk anymore. No, we can't. We can't. Is it history if you're writing about current events? Well, that's why I've asked that question twice. Well, yeah. it happened, and then he wrote about it. <laughs> so, paper, so the Sun <laughs> newspaper no, that, is a, a lame response, but it's not untrue. <laughs> Simplified history version, yes. <laughs> Don't know nothing further for me, and you know the, how he died probably has no bearing on how I'm considering this. To be honest, right? I fear this is not going to be a leader's night. Uh, let's go to Kate next because Kate has spent the whole of that sticking her finger up at Alina, <laughs> and I presume you're now going to tell us why Herodotus did not have a vagina and is better than Thucydides. 
Uh, pretty much, yeah. I'm going to switch my camera off first, though, because I don't need to see you all distracting me. Thanks very much. Um, so, and I'm going to stick with the preparation that I waded through. Um, I will try not to trip over too many of the words, because it is all Greek for me, um, and tell you about Herodotus, who was around a bit before Thucydides, but that's, I'll leave him there and I won't mention him again. <clears throat> So Herodotus was basically the inventor of history, the subject, not events within it. He was an ancient Greek born during the 5th century BC in Halicarnassus, the Persian Empire, which is now Bodrum in Western Turkey. So as a young man, he would have heard first-hand local eyewitness accounts of events within the Persian Empire. Herodotus wrote the histories, the founding work of history in Western literature, a detailed record of the Greco-Persian Wars though he also extensively covers the prehistory of the conflict and the cultural and ideological issues surrounding it. His pioneering critical inquiry earned him the title, from Cicero, of Father of History, and he was certainly the first writer to collect materials and then critically arrange them into an historiographic narrative. This narrative is driven by his constant questioning why, and it is this proto-scientific approach and referencing of sources which sets him apart from previous authors such as Homer. Herodotus took Historia, the name for this type of investigation, and changed the meaning to that with which we are more familiar today. His work established the genre and study of history in the Western world. It is the earliest Greek prose to have survived intact, a record of the ancient traditions, politics, geography, and the clashes of various cultures. Even now, it remains one of the West's most important sources regarding these affairs. Herodotus has been called a pathfinder and philosopher. His quest for answers leads him to the origins and beginning of events, introducing a form of explanation which links the disparate strands of Herodotian inquiry. A total of nine books, that's nine, not eight, make up the histories, combining two closely linked major themes. The cultural insights yielded by his extensive travel are dominant in the ethnographic sections, while expansion, warfare and conflict are covered in the historical sections. <clears throat> All this is set on the broader stage of the ancient world and includes geographical references, climatic observations, flora and fauna, as well as notes on differences in the customs and lifestyle of Greeks, Persians and other peoples. We only have such a well-developed, insightful account thanks to Herodotus. His work was traditionally dismissed by some as anecdotal. To readers used to a straightforward plot, the histories was a seemingly endless series of digressions. However, classical scholars have since found a coherence between Herodotus' supposed digressions and his main narrative. The digressions are actually case studies, mostly in the nature of humanity, examples of all too common foibles and imperfections, such as overconfidence, greed and envy, but also of luck, fate and the balance of fortunes. Herodotus managed to relate stories which still speak to us 2,500 years later. He was centuries ahead of his time. Herodotus and his histories stand at the intersection between the older mythical world and the new classical outlook. The gods are still very much alive, but have receded to a transcendental distance. He was sometimes criticised by his peers or historians during the period following his life for including what they termed legends and fantasy in his writing. Since then, more recent historians, and more notably archaeologists, have corroborated much of the information he provided. It must also be noted that Herodotus himself states that he only reports what he has been told as he was told it. 
He is careful to explain from where he derived his information, whether as a first-hand witness or from a source, in which case he also comments as to their reliability. For example, my own observation bears out the statement made to me by the priests or of the pillars. I can't say this word. (laughs) Of the Pelagian language. I can't say that word. I'm really sorry. (laughs) I cannot speak with certainty. Herodotus presents us with all the different views and versions, allowing the reader to form their own opinion. Surely this is balanced reporting, and in doing so, Herodotus has given us not only an invaluable historical account, but also an insight into the time during which he lived. The occasions when his observations truly defy credibility are few, and memorable only because they stand in such marked contrast to the accurate pictures he paints of the world. He was extremely diligent and precise in recording detail, particularly measurements. This level of detail not only bolsters him as a credible source, but proves his skills as a researcher were second to none. Many present-day historians, with all the tools and resources available to them, would struggle to offer a similar level of detail and accuracy. Herodotus would have published his work by way of dramatic recitation. So not only was he the first historian ever, but he was also an exceptional performer. There are certain sections of his work which are independent from the rest. These would be the performance pieces, which were recited at popular festivals. Second century comedian of sorts, Lucian of Samosata, suggested that Herodotus recited the histories in its entirety, all nine books, to spectators at the Olympic Games in one sitting, to rapturous applause. Though we may no longer share Herodotus' view of the past, we delight in the richness of the world he described. Its stories, landscapes, characters and insights into human nature reverberate down the ages. What makes the work stand out, above all, is the history's sense of wonder and discovery. Herodotus' histories remains a classic testament to the pleasures of research and learning. Best historian ever is a very subjective and personal thing. But were it not for Herodotus, we might not have had any other historian. So surely the title of greatest historian has to go to the person who invented history as we know it. Um, I just, I'm not, I don't agree at all. Well done, an argument well made, um, but just not one I agree with. Uh, Clive, <laughs> did you not get this rammed down your throat at your posh school? No, I didn't do ancient history. I did modern history instead. Well, a bit of ancient history, but not very much. That's rubbish. Holmes, are you sold? I'm not not entirely. I mean, I'm going to ask similar questions that I've asked before in that was he recording stuff in a sort of contemporary fashion rather than ancient events? No, no, he very much um, looked at the origins of the beginnings of like the pre prehistory of what what ha- was happening just before and during his lifetime. So he he was looking at the the causes of current events. Was he not just writing a travel journal with a load of anecdotes in it? No, he was writing real history stuff. Right, what about the giant golden ants or the flipper storyline? Yeah, there are a whole list of things that, that were wrong. Bit far-fetched. Yeah, come on, like you're listening to some of the source material that he so wonderfully gained. Like, was he pissed when he heard it? Or yeah, he, he, said that, he, he said that that it might not be true. It's well, just... that's not impeccable research, then, is it? That's like me saying, um, I don't know, that I, I could publish my story about Elizabeth Taylor being the son of one of my World War One Etonian war people uh, because I heard someone else say it. I don't have any proof, but I can say that as a historian, I got given it as a source, so I'm going to write it. 
That's what and, and also, wasn't it the fact that it, not only were they giant ants, but that they could take down a camel? You know, there is another. I'm not sure. Like I say, it was it was a little bit heavy, um, and I may have bitten off more than I could chew, particularly <laughs> with pronouncing that fucking word. <laughs> what word was that? Pelagian, I think, something like that. And also, I mean, I think as Alina mentioned earlier, it'd be interesting that he used to write about the gods. Now, was that, as you've suggested, when people themselves talked about the gods, or did he genuinely believe they existed and wrote them into his narrative? No, he didn't believe they existed as in on an earthly plane. It was more that there were godlike figures in the wherever, whatever, who had an effect on life on Earth, in much the same way that people believe in religion now, I think. He certainly moved on from them interacting with humans. I'm just like, I could, when I go on my travels, I could just write down all the shit people tell me about the history of wherever I am and make money out of it. If that was how to be a historian, then we'd all be doing it. I mean, he, you could, and if people are still reading your books in two and a half thousand years, then um, that's cool. Again, is he the first, or is he just the only one we know about? Because it's been two and a half thousand years, and the other ones don't survive. It's he's the, the first, yeah. He's the, the, the earliest surviving. Yeah. yeah, it's like the whole Shakespeare conundrum, isn't it? It's like, is he the best, or is he just the only one where like a massive bulk of his work survives? I thought Sir Walter Raleigh um, actually really wrote the Shakespeare books, or was it? Kits, or was it Christopher Marlowe, or was it? Marlowe's plays are better, they're darker. I did not write the Shakespeare books. <laughs> There's no evidence to say you didn't. If you read Someone my uncle's book on uh, Shakespeare. No, that's okay. If it's in his book, then it's properly sourced history. I don't know, I'm just not sold on him. I mean, is, is it the case, though, to be fair, with all of these ancient ones, in that, you know, there's such slim pickings in terms of what survived. It's sort of these or nothing, really, so... Yeah, I mean, yeah, the, you you have no way to verify any of it, do you? I mean, when it's that long ago, who knows really whether? I mean, two and a half thousand years ago, who knows what what was going on, what they were doing? I think to be fair, you know, I think someone like Geoffrey of Chaucer who wrote that book. When did he write that book? Eleventh, twelfth century history of English kings. I mean, he 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 did a similar thing then, didn't he? I mean. He wrote King Arthur, about King Arthur in here, in that. Was that him? Am I getting mixed up? There is a really cool book coming out because we've been asked if we want to interview the person with a history hack and they've done uh, a history of England, but as if they've taken all the medieval lore as if it was real and written like an alternative history of England so that you can see what it would be like. Cool. Geoffrey of Monmouth at Holmes. Yeah. Oh, Geoffrey of Monmouth is so trippy when you read it. Um, I, I had this beautiful, um, Reader's Digest version of it, um, oh, no, not Reader's Digest, um, a Folio Society, whatever they call it, lovely book of it. And, uh, and yeah, I'm sh- that guy was on shrooms. That's the only explanation for what he wrote. <laughs> my, my family used to live in St. Breville's, which is opposite Monmouth, and I was forced to read that as like an eight year old, and I just nearly died. But then I grew to love it. And yes, he was on shrooms. I, I've been to the castle there. I'll just throw that out there. What, St. Breville's? Were you on shrooms? Yeah, no, no, it was on trains. <laughs> some briar vowels, some brevels. Yeah. Nothing further from me. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? 
helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Excellent. Right, who have we got left? Kit, Lockie, Clive, you haven't been yet either, have you? No. <laughs> Let's see what uh, Cockney fanfare we've got for us tonight, Clive. The person I have chosen to discuss this evening is not somebody who has spoken kindly to nor men- mentored Zach. But despite <laughs> that, rightly has the claim to be the most influential and therefore greatest historian in history. Karl Marx. I can hear the whirring of the judge's mind as he says to himself, wait, what? But surely Marx was a political scientist or an economist or a philosopher or a sociologist or a political theorist or a journalist. He wasn't an historian, was he? Or he might say a historian because that's the type of people that judges are. You see here that, recognising as I do that the system is inherently flawed and biased against me, I am once again going for a moral rather than an actual victory. Of course, as judges invariably are, the judge would be wrong. Even Wikipedia, that reference source that I have discovered from these trips down the pub, is so beloved of the historians who mingle here acknowledges that Marx was indeed one of them. That Marx had more than one string to his bow, and he used elements of one discipline to reinforce his understanding of another, makes him no less of an historian. Is Lucy Worsley less of a historian because she likes dressing up, or Winston Churchill because he also ran the country, or indeed Alex because she writes eloquently about football, or Alina, because, well, just because. I've not selected Marx for a particular book or historical work. He didn't write specifically about a Tudor consort or a, pl- or a Plantagenet pretender. None of his work will appear as a costume drama at nine o'clock on a Sunday evening on ITV. He wrote instead about greater themes in history, tools by which the whole of history can be interpreted. He was a big picture guy. Marx used history and historical analysis to understand and explain the past. His analysis gave rise to a whole school of history and, quite obviously, to one of the most important political movements of the past two centuries. Even if you disagree with his politics, it is hard to disagree with either his importance or his historical method. In essence, Marx did what all investigators are told to do. He followed the money. History could be explained in economic terms, and as a consequence, 
and as a consequence of the class struggle that economic imbalance creates. Just about every aspect of history revolves around money and the power that it buys or the power that generates it. Put a little more formally, Marx developed the concept of historical materialism, which argued that human societies and their cultural institutions, like religion, law, morality, etc., were the outgrowth of collective economic activity. And I know that's right because it is a direct quote from Wikipedia. It's hard to fault this view of the past. Look at just about every development in history and see how economic forces have determined what was to happen. The Black Death led to greater freedom for peasants and the growth of the new socio-political class, which gave further economic grew further economically with developments such as the Reformation until it expressed itself in the Civil War and Glorious Revolution. Look at the English Reformation, a cash grab by the king, which led to wealth from the church being transferred to a new class of landowner. And again, not only political power enjoyed by that class, but to capitalistic ventures in Ireland, the plantations, and then the Americas, ventures which were ultimately sustained by slavery. Look at every aspect of British imperialism. It all fits the Marxist view of history. Where Marx may have been wrong was not his view of history, but, is, but in his extra, extra, sorry, extrapolation of that view into predicting the future. The dialectic was meant to provide a roadmap of where we were going, as well as showing us where we had been. But English and German workers did not rise up and overthrow capitalism. The move to worker emancipation has been more gradual. The Russian Revolution, albeit nominally based on Marx's principles, defied those principles and ultimately failed, but not in a way that Marx would have predicted. The history, however, was sound. It's not merely the historical analysis that Marx himself conducted that's important, but the work done by those who adopted his methods. One of the strongest schools in history in the latter part of the 20th century was comprised of historians who owed allegiance to this method. Names such as Dave Renton, C.L.R. James, Alfred Klar, Yanis Kordatos, and Robert Grimm are but a handful of the many who espoused this means of historical analysis. Strangely, no Dan Snow on that list. And while there are other theories of history, I would strongly argue that, possibly other than the greatly discredited Whig view of history, few, if any, can claim the impact of Marxist theory. Of course, no discussion would have validity without quotes, and Marx does have some bloody good quotes. As you will appreciate, he lived and died in London. One of the best known is usually rendered as History repeats itself, first as tragedy and second as farce. But it's possibly better in the original fuller version. Eagle remarks somewhere that all great world historical facts and personages occur, as it were, twice. He has forgotten to add, the first time is tragedy, the second is farce. And so many more. Oh, which ones to choose? Communism is the riddle of history solved and it knows itself to be this solution. The entire movement of history as simply communism's actual act of genesis, the birth act of its empirical existence, is therefore, for its thinking consciousness, the comprehended and known process of its becoming. We know only a single science, the science of history. 
one can look at history from two sides and divide it into the history of nature and the history of men. The two sides are, however, inseparable. The history of nature and the history of men are dependent on each other so long as men exist. The history of nature, called natural science, does not concern us here, but we will have to examine the history of men since almost the whole ideology amounts either to a distorted conception of this history or to a complete abstraction from it. Ideology is, ideology is itself only one of the aspects of this history. And finally, not because it has anything to do with history, the ruling classes trembled at a communist revolution. The proletarians have nothing to lose but their chains. They have a world to win. Workers of the world unite. Well done, Clive. Um, I feel like you purposely threw yourself on your sword knowing that Holmes wouldn't pick you. Is that what happened there? Oh, quite obviously, I'd never get picked, so I thought might as well just go all out. <laughs> so now that you made Holmes a cockney, I don't think you will. <laughs> well, I couldn't do that kind of Brummy moved South accent. It just didn't work. <laughs> Well, I mean, it was a it was a bold start having a pop at the judge and then saying that you're going to ignore the criteria completely, um, which I thought was interesting. I mean, I, I think the the main issue that I sort of have with this is that he didn't he not just use history just to support his other beliefs. He used history to support his beliefs, so his beliefs were large were very much based upon history. I mean, I mean, some the point you made, I think, about religion and law as a result of the outgrowth of the collective economic activity, I can sort of see the logic behind that. But I think you also said every aspect of history revolves around money. Well, there's lots of prehistory where I doubt that that can apply. Not money, well, economy. Not necessarily cash economy, but economy. Whether Whether it's getting food to eat or land to occupy. Or hunting grounds to exploit. Yeah, which which is fair enough. And then I think that brings, you know, does bring the religious and then the law angles back into play. Um, but did he publish any history that was separate? Yes, he believes. Yeah, he did. He published one book about. He published well a large number of essays, but in particular there were es- essays or books or pamphlets about Louis Napoleon, about the American Civil War, about um, the British in India, lots of things like that. And how how were they received? Um, well, they were written by Marx, so they were fairly tertiary received and read by read read no doubt enthusiastically by many of his adherents, but not by so many others. <clears throat> right, let's go about as far away from Karl Marx as you can possibly get, um, because Kit is also flying a moral flag tonight, aren't you, Kit? I am. I am going to do one of history's greatest women. Um, and I have picked her because she is without question my favourite historian. Um, I have gone for Anna Komnena. And I've done so because she ticks all of the boxes of a great historian. She was a witness to the events she wrote about, but she wrote about the history of them. Uh, she gives astonishing detail of the period. And most of all, she's incredibly readable. Today, you can sit down, enjoy reading and relate to the emotions captured in the Alexiad. And given the book is almost 900 years old, that is incredibly impressive. So Anna Kornel was one of the imperial family of what we call the Byzantine Empire. 
uh, but she would have thought herself as a continuation of the Roman Empire. She was born in Constantinople in 1083 AD, the daughter of the Emperor Alexius I, and she was a total princess. She describes herself as being born and bred in the purple. She was a huge daddy's girl. She was also incredibly bright. Uh, she was instructed in all of the sciences of the day and, by all accounts, was a master at every single one of them. Uh, she was also regarded as one of the best doctors in the empire and, by extension, one of the best doctors in the world. In her early 20s, she ran a hospital for 10,000 patients and orphans where she also taught medicine. Um, her husband, um, who she married age 16, was called Nikiferos Bryennios. He was a historian and a general. Um, they were probably an intellectual power couple. She also had a rebellious streak. Uh, Alexius, being a hardcore Orthodox Christian, had banned her from reading anything to do with polytheism. But we know that Anna ignored him because in her older age, um, she was renowned for being able to recite the Bible and the Odyssey from memory. She was regarded by the contemporaries of her day as a genius. And we know this isn't sucking up because, spoilers, Anna's life really does not go well. So saying that uh, she's incredible is a pretty big deal. Let's talk about her fall, uh, because it leads to the book. In 1112 AD, uh, Alexius I fell ill, and we get a power struggle between Anna and her brother John for the throne. Six years later, despite Anna serving as one of his personal physicians, uh, Alexius dies, and John is declared the emperor, John II. Anna and her mum then try and stage a coup, uh, but they're involved in an assassination plot against John and her husband, Nikiforus, won't get involved. So the plot collapses. Anna is then exiled to a monastery for the rest of her life. And it's during that time in the monastery that she writes her great work, the Alexiad. It's written in Greek in about 1148 AD, and it is a complete history of her father's reign, which had ended 30 years earlier. As I said, she was a daddy's girl. It starts in 1048 AD um, and rounds out in the second Norman invasion of 1108. Um, it details the attacks of the Normans under Robert the Fox, the struggles with the Turks, and is our only Byzantine first-hand account of the First Crusade. It talks in depth about meetings and motivations, gives vivid descriptions of characters, describes speeches they gave, and how certain objectives were achieved. She was there, but she also interviewed people who were actual witnesses to events, compiling it into a terrific, exciting account. Perhaps the best example of this is my favourite passage in the Alexiad. It is her description of Bohemond of Taranto, a figure who had attacked the Byzantine Empire repeatedly. But I love Bohemond and love him. Very, love him. It's very clear that Anna loves him as well. Uh, so this is a quote from the Alexiad, which I'm going to do in my finest um, sexy Byzantine princess voice. The sight of him inspired admiration. His stature was such that he towered almost a full cubit over the tallest men. He was slender of waist and of flank, with broad shoulders and chest. He was neither taper of form nor heavily built and fleshy, but perfectly proportioned. One might say he conformed to the polycletian ideal. The skin all over his body was very white, except for his face, which was both white and red. His hair was lightish brown, though whether his beard was red or any other colour, I cannot say for the razor had attacked it, leaving his chin smoother than any marble. His eyes were light blue and gained some hint of the man's spirit and dignity. It's start this style of writing, basically thirsting over some of the people she met, that makes Anna so important. 
She describes how she felt about historic events as well as giving historical context. And this is unique because it gives us an insight into the Byzantine mindset, particularly from a female perspective. And some of the prose is wonderful. Yet for all her flourishes, Anna very deliberately sets out to be impartial. She clearly had biases. She praises her father as a Christian. She refers to the Franks as barbarians. And she doesn't mention her brother John at all. But most of the time she remains objective. And she describes what her enemies wanted and why they were fighting. She gives credit where credit is due. She's also open that not everything is perfect. She was in her 60s when she was writing from memory. And basically the introduction says, dude, I'm an old woman. I can't be expected to remember everything. There's some parts I just can't recall. Like many women in history, people have incorrectly tried to claim that her husband, Nikephorus, actually wrote the book and she just edited it, despite the fact that he was a historian of a different period and had died a full 10 years before she began writing. But Anna Komnana is one of the greatest women in history, and her great work is one of the most important histories of all time. And if you haven't read the Alexiad, I urge you to do so. It's available for free online. It isn't just great history. It's a fantastic, accessible insight into the mind of a woman who died almost 900 years ago. She is indeed something quite special. Uh, and if you want to hear us rant more about Bohemond of Toronto and how hilarious he is, there's a podcast coming up on that in May uh, with Kit and I and a friend of Kit. Um, Holmes, where are you on this one? Okay, I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, I was, I was slightly worried throughout that that um, Kit was going to set off my, a certain branded automated voice-controlled speaker that isn't that far away from me. <laughs> <laughs> We managed to get through without that happening. Um, so that, I mean, it's similar questions before. I mean, she seems to be writing about contemporary events as well, although you said she did write about the build-up to them as well. Was that going as far back as 30 years, did you say? So she, she actually goes back 100 years. Um, so she was writing in 1148. She begins in 1048, um, which is about 40 years before she was born. Um, so she does write some contemporary events, but the majority of them are uh, are not. And it's the equivalent of someone writing a history of the Second World War in the uh, the 1980s. Um, yeah. You know, would you if you call that a history, then this certainly counts too. And then how was how again? I've asked this brother. So how did how did she publish it? How was her how was her work? How did it become known? How did she get it out there? She was a fucking princess. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, um, when the royal family wants something published, it gets published. Um, no, she was actually in a monastery. The royal family um, wants the princess killed, they get killed. <laughs> That's slightly worrying. Um, Ooh. <laughs> um, she was in a monastery for the final 30 years of her life. Um, we don't quite know when she died, but around 30 years. So it was very easy to get that arranged. She wrote in uh, in Greek, <clears throat> in the same kind of style of Greek of uh, as we've, we've, of other authors we've discussed tonight, actually. Um, and, uh, and yeah, it was, it was done and, and, ha- and it was handwritten and then recorded through the monastery. Uh, you did mention that there were bits that she missed out, you know, the bit about her brother, John. Presumably there was nothing about the, the attempted coup then as well. Uh, no, she, she, she doesn't mention the fact that she and her mum got together and tried to murder her brother. Um, although we, we know almost certainly that she did do that. <laughs> And you did sort of paraphrase this as well, but I wrote it down. You basically said along the lines of she couldn't be expected to remember everything. Yeah, um, she she has this introduction where she she basically says there are lapses in my memory um, because although she was she was able to interview people like her uncle, for example, who who was present, um, she was when she was recording what she felt and what she saw. 
um, she was writing of what events she witnessed as a teenager. Um, and she was in her 60s. So she's trying to get it right. Occasionally, she doesn't quite get all of the dates, uh, doesn't all line up, but she admits this is a flaw. And I think that's a sign of a good historian to be willing to say that you might not be perfect in the same line as Gibbon. And then do we know what sort, you said she went back 100 years. Do we know what sources she used for those? Yeah, um, so it was predominantly her family members. Um, so she actually interviewed um, her family members extensively. She also used her husband's writing. So her husband was writing a history of actually the uh, the emperor that Alexios had overthrown um, because it's the Byzantines and everyone's backstabbing everybody. Um, and so her husband had actually begun compiling things about 10 years earlier when he died. Uh, she did take that work and she did actually sort of read it and interpret some of those facts, but she didn't edit his work. She did it independently. She did write her own book. And then presumably if she was going back a hundred years, there were no surviving family, family members from that time. So would that have been stories that sort of passed down from the, the generation above? No, she actually interviewed them when she was much, much younger. Um, so as I mentioned, she was this sort of polymath who was very, very keen on studying. And so she cornered her uncles and she would ask them, you know, what actually happened with these events? Who did what? Why did they do it? Um, and so she was doing a lot of first hand, actual first hand accounts. Okay, great. No, nothing further from me. I really like her. Um, if I wasn't doing one myself, I'd want her to win. Um, let's stick. There's, there's me and Lockie left. Let's stick with the medieval. Oh, and Marcus. Let's go to Marcus next. Let's break up the medievalness then. Marcus, are you going to tell us that Wellington was the greatest historian in the history of the world? No, I'm. I'm doing something quite different. Um, <laughs> Um, I don't, I didn't need to prepare for today because we, I've already done this preparation for another podcast. I thought, I thought I'd take it seriously, um, and do one that I genuinely believe is, um, the greatest historian, especially for our generation. There's a lot of people tonight, and I mean this with all the love, that I've never heard of apart from occasionally on another podcast. And I don't mean that with any disrespect. I just don't think they've had much of an impact on our lives, and they probably didn't inspire many of us. Sorry, Alina, you included. Um, but I really think that the greatest historian is Holmes. And that might not be Andrew Holmes. He's fucked off. Uh, I'm not sure whether I just include or not. Carry on. This is, um, it's just awkward. I've just said you're the greatest historian. He's back. No, um, the thing ran out of charge. I should get the other one. Carry on. I broke that one. Um, yeah, genuinely, uh, Professor Richard Holmes, uh, a man who's dear to hopefully many of us and has genuinely inspired a generation to go into the area of history, especially battlefield guiding. Uh, only found out recently he, how much he um, founded reenactments in the UK, the English Civil War and the Civil Knot Society and taught Shrivenham. He also has the, one of the rare uh, accolades of being both a serving brigadier and a sitting uh, professor at the same time. Professor Richard Holmes wrote over 25 books. Um, so I know we sometimes say quality, not quantity, but the quality of those works are truly awe-inspiring. Uh, his research and his knowledge uh, spans many different generations from current conflicts almost. Uh, he was writing a uh, an account of Dusty Warriors, about the Princess of Wales Regiment in Iraq very soon after uh, they withdrew because he was there. He flew out to Iraq and witnessed the conflict. Yes, he did actually write a, an account of Wellington, but that is not why I'm choosing him. His accounts of um, Tommy and Redcoat 
are the kind of go-to uh, knowledgeable books about the mindset of the British soldier. And I've never seen a book that has such a good insight into a British soldier. He was a man who loved the British army and knew that they were rogues, they were scoundrels, but had a real bit of fair affection for them. I was lucky to see him uh, lecture twice, though I was very young, um, and I really recall um, what a great orator he was. And also, he translates very well onto TV. The War Walks series are just awe-inspiring. There aren't many gimmicks. He doesn't hop on a speedboat and go down on his personal boat down a river whilst trying to flog you one of his hats from his online shop. But what he does go and do is pick up a Lee Enfield, put on a good tweed jacket, maybe have a sip of snaps and tell you about the Battle of Mons, the retreats in that area and how well walked Normandy is for over generations of warfare or walk up the Mount Lions Mound at Waterloo, give you the insight, and then go down the road to Agincourt, pick up a bow, and then ride on his favourite horse down the road and start hitting the head of some cabbages. Richard Holmes really was inspiring uh, a generation. So many, I know, in History Hat community uh, loved the man and sadly passed away far too soon. Uh, when Boney started putting together uh, the podcast on what would have been his 75th birthday, the outpouring of love that we saw for him uh, was quite moving. I was genuinely very touched. Uh, I've got most of, but not all of his uh, works on my shelves. And I'd hope that nearly everybody's either watched an episode of his or owns one of his books. And if they haven't, War Walks, there's a few of them on YouTube and they're rarely repeated on the BBC, but they are fantastic television. Uh, barely ever repeated, no gimmicks, no CGI, just really, really good military history. And for that reason, and all jokes aside, I really do believe that Professor Richard Holmes was the greatest military historian and therefore probably the greatest historian ever. I uh, wrote my first book in 2014 and there were some issues with getting hold of war diaries because of digitization that was going on and um i took some stuff out of a richard holmes book and one of the first reviews i got someone trashed me for using richard holmes as a source for like for 1914 and that's when i realized that the world is just full of assholes and that you will never please anybody because if someone's slating you for using richard holmes then they're just an ass and there's nothing you can do to help them is there yeah no, I mean, I genuinely, when you, when you watch those programs, I know he was a serving, uh, TA soldier, reservist, uh, but his insight into the soldiers, and I, I don't think there's anyone better. He was, he was a professor of history. I don't know why you couldn't use him, but he just seemed like such a lovely man. He, um, he had incredible empathy, didn't he? Like, um, yeah. just, <laughs> just an instinct, um, for it all, as well as terrific knowledge. Uh, as well, when I, when we, when we went into the first lockdown, um, I ran a stupid Twitter thing, whatever, the greatest first world war book. Um, and, and we just, and, and did, you know, those little world cups of, of mm. that where you, you, you yes. have the little surveys and you, you, you put four up against each other and then you whittle it down and Tommy won it. Um, best first world war, uh, book. So it's, it's loved and that means something. That's the thing as well is that he, I would never, ever 
write a Napoleonic book. Well, I, I'd have to think fucking long and hard before I sat down and decided to write a Napoleonic book. But he wrote Napoleonic. He wrote First World War. He just, he, it was, and we interviewed Dan Jones right back at the beginning of History Hack Alina. I don't know if you remember. And he said, no, historians shouldn't be afraid to do that because if you've been trained properly as a historian, then why should you be afraid? He was talking about the fact that he's had to go and write some stuff from late antiquity as the introduction to his new book. He said, and I just keep telling myself, I'm not scared of it. I was taught how to do my job properly and I can transpose that out of medieval stuff and if I need to. And Richard Holmes was brilliant at it. No, 100%. He, he wrote, you know, 1990s stuff. Uh, he wrote Marlborough. And then I remember Peter Caddick Adams, like his protege was saying, you know, if you want to understand Gallipoli, you need to look at Troy. And if you want to understand Troy, you need to understand Bronze Age warfare and you need to have all this knowledge. And he just had it, you know, in his back pocket, which normally included like a hip flask and he was in a tweet, smart tweed back pocket. He was a character and he was yeah. so beloved. I'm generally quite moved when thinking about him. He, yeah. he used to use his, his riding expenses through the county as well. Everybody I've come into contact with through the Guild of Battlefield Guides and, and Richard was the first patron who virtually set the guild up. It's, it's as much about his um, enthusiasm and expertise as it is about his amenability and accessibility. He made military history accessible. You didn't have to know anything. You just he also to... made military historians accessible. Yes. God knows, some of them still fucking yes. aren't. Some of them still think they're too good to talk to a certain class of other historian or class of person, and they think that they're better for being a hardcore academic, and he never, ever behaved like that. He made military history and military historians accessible to everybody, whether that's a youngster of seven who wants to pick up a, a bow and shoot an arrow, or whether it's a veteran going across the battlefield, whether it's somebody with a particular interest in, in one troop or regiment, and he would bring context into that and help you understand more and refer you on how to look at war ducks. He was he was all about making the past accessible. He was um, history Keith Floyd back when he made it big doing cookery stuff because he was just half pissed in some woman's kitchen making dinner and people loved it. And it was the same sort of I think he was the same niche in that he was just like an ordinary bloke who liked history, um, regardless of his qualifications or his pedigree who just came across like that instead of coming across as someone who was lecturing you on it. Holmes, are you sold on this one? Yeah, I mean, to a certain degree, I was always going to be because he's, you know, the one that I've heard of and the one that I'm familiar with some of his work. I mean, I don't think there's anything that I can say that people, you know, you can see how what a strong candidate he is from the discussion that it's led to between you sort of thing. I mean... It's Tommy Book was one of the first first war books that I ever read, and I probably wouldn't have the interest now if I hadn't read it. Watching War Walks is exceptionally good on that. He tells you just about just about the right amount you need to know, um, and makes it all seem really quite simple to understand. So yeah, he's a, a, a very very strong candidate. Excellent. Uh, ooh, what should we do next? Should we do medieval or twentieth century? Alina, you pick. Of course I'm gonna go 20th century, like, what kind right, of- That's me then. Okay. I've done my prep while we've been doing this, so it's probably not that great. Uh, and it's not that long either, because I'm here to champion the Churchill name. No, I'm not arguing for myself, because I'm not that much of a narcissist, unlike some people on social media in the history field. No, I'm here to argue for Grandad, Winston 
Spencer Churchill. Forget Churchill, the scallywag, self-absorbed and yet effectual politician and national hero. We're talking about Churchill, the historian. Chris's checklist, passion, not only yourself, but in inspiring others. Need I even start quoting his speeches after that conversation with Holmes in the break? I'm kind of scared to in case they want royalties. Uh, Was he capable of inspiring people? Yes, he was. Was he skilled? Absolutely. Starts off with autobiographical stuff from Africa and Cuba. And these are indeed journalism because they were paying his way. It was how he was getting to see the war by sending reports back. But he's in his early 20s at this point. So I think we can forgive him for the fact that he's not writing these as historical books. You've either got it with a pen or you haven't. And he had it in spades from the beginning. He's left us, if not with a history book on those conflicts, a rich source of what it was like to be there in the midst of these colonial wars. But he is undoubtedly a historian as well. We have his four volume history of the English speaking peoples. Again, we've just discussed how difficult it is to come out of your niche and write and be brave enough to write cross era. Um, and arguably doing an entire history of the English speaking peoples is a terrifying thing. I wouldn't touch with a barge pole. I don't think anyone in this room would unless they were really hammered when they signed the contract. Uh, so he does a book about his first of all, he does one on his dad, which is fair enough. A little bit self-indulgent, but a two volume book on Lord Randolph Churchill. Then he moves on to Marlborough, a more distant relative. Uh, but what I want to talk about is his five parts on World War One and his six parts on World War Two. These are very much history. You were there. How hard can it be to write it? I'd argue it makes it even more difficult. You can't mark the man down because he rolled up his sleeves and helped defeat the Nazis or win the First World War. What can you say? What can you not say? What can you release? How can you make your case if you've got to think about stuff that's still not in the public domain? It's a really difficult task and I think arguably would have just been easier to wait 20 years and write it after all of the stuff was released. But he didn't do that. He's an egomaniac, sure. Who wants that level of power if they're not? But that's not why the story of either war revolves around him in his books. It's because by making it angle towards a memoir, he's writing what he knows. And he's writing in the immediate aftermath using the sources available to him. So, yes, there's less on Soviet Russia because he wasn't in Soviet Russia. He wasn't in Germany. But it's still there. He still broadens out the scope. This isn't journalism for the sceptics in the room. This is knowing that you have participated in events that will be remembered for decades, if not centuries to come, and providing the world with an utterly unique account of them for the historical record. But the most important thing that makes him the greatest historian ever, apart from him being my granddad, apparently, I think Zach mentioned articulate beyond measure doesn't just change the mold he wrote to his own and no one will ever be able to imitate it because it's exquisite and so there's little point in me just rattling on about why he's awesome when his own writing does it for him you're the center character in your own book what do you say of your mistakes he says my bringing back fisher to the admiralty in 1914 was one of the most hazardous steps i have ever had to take in my official duty certainly so far as i was personally concerned it was the most disastrous yet looking back to those tragic years i cannot feel that if i had to re- the de- repeat the decision with the knowledge i had at that time i should act differently his ability to boil down the complexities of an entire generation and the reign of george v he encompassed what it felt to be like to be in the middle of it in a paragraph The reign of King George V will be regarded as one of the most important and memorable in the whole range of English history and that of the British Empire. In no similar period of such tremendous changes swept across the world. In one 
in one period have its systems, manners and outlook been more decisively altered. In none have the knowledge, science, wealth and power of mankind undergone such vast and rapid extension. Indeed, the speed at which the evolution of society has taken place baffles all comparison. These great shocks and disturbances have been fatal to most of the empires, monarchies and political organisations of Europe and Asia. A large part of the globe, which in Victorian times lay in the mild sunshine of law and tranquillity, is now scourged by storms of anarchy. In explaining why Germany was seemingly so up for war in 1914, again, he does it in a paragraph. It is indeed impossible to exaggerate the fecklessness which across a whole generation led the German Empire in successive lurches to catastrophe. The youthful sovereign who so lightheartedly dismissed Bismarck was soon to deprive Germany of all reinsurance and safety founded upon an understanding with Russia. Next in fatal order came the estrangement of England. Family connections which might have cemented national friendship became increasingly a cause of discord. Lastly, there was the navy, thus England carrying with her the whole British Empire slowly inclined towards France. A secret clause in the original treaty of the Triple Alliance absolved Italy from participation in any war against Great Britain. The Kaiser in 1902 had already given mortal offence to Japan. After so many years of pomp and medieval posturing, the master of German policy had stripped his country of every friend but one, the weak, unwieldy, internally torn empire of the Habsburgs. Power and direction have passed to sterner hands. The ungovernable passions of nations have broken loose. Death for millions stalks upon the scenes. All the cannons roar. That's how the war breaks out in his book. Sensitivity. We all know how much World War One politicians love World War One generals, right? This is what he writes about Haig. A selfless, dispassionate, detached equanimity ruled his spirit, not only at moments of acute crisis, but month after month and year after year. Inflexible, rigorously pedantic in his assertion of the professional point of view, he nevertheless treated the civil power with respect and loyalty. Even when he knew that was his recall was debated amongst the war cabinet, he neither sought to marshal the powerful political forces which would have come to his aid, nor failed at any time in faithlessness, faithfulness to the ministers under whom he was serving. Right or wrong, Victoria or stultified, he remained within the limits he had worked out for himself, cool and undaunted, ready to meet all emergencies and to accept death or obscurity should either come his way. And if you know Haig, you know that that is probably the fairest assessment you can possibly write about him. And it's written beautifully. He was in the middle of it, but he witnesses these clash of titans. He sees Lloyd George go up against the generals and he watches them rip each other to shreds. And again, the sensitivity is there talking about the nuances of relationships between his colleagues. To do Haig and Lloyd George uses one sentence. Neither Haig's view of Lloyd George nor Lloyd George's view of Haig is likely to be supported by history, for they will both be deemed much better men than they deemed each other. His insightfulness. His turn of phrase, as I've mentioned, is sublime. Um, He wrote this book called Great Contemporaries. And he didn't, by great, he didn't mean good because Hitler was in there. It was just uh, as in great names, big names. He wrote about the last emperor of Germany, Kaiser Wilhelm II. Did he slate this man who he tried to destroy for four years? No, he tried to explain him. No one should judge the career of the Emperor William II without asking the question, what should I have done in his position? Are you quite sure you would have remained a humble-minded man with no exaggerated idea of your importance, with no undue reliance upon your own opinion, practising the virtue of humility and striving always for peace? Is the new-arrived, late-arrived German Empire, with all its tremendous and expanding forces, to be led by a president of the Young Man's Christian Association? Did he blame him for the war? It'd be easy to for his generation. An awful fate 
Was it the wage of guilt or of incapacity? There is, of course, a point where incapacity and levity are so flagrant that they become tantamount to guilt. Nevertheless, history should incline to the more charitable view and acquit William II of having planned and plotted the world war. But the defence which can be made will not be flattering to his self-esteem. I leave you with a measure of his writing style and why it's pure poetry. This was his him carrying on assessing the Kaiser. Just strut about and pose and rattle the undrawn sword. All he wished was to feel like Napoleon and to be like him without having had to fight his battles. If you are the summit of a volcano, the least you can do is smoke. So he smoked a pillar of cloud by day and the gleam of fire by night to all who gazed from afar. And slowly and surely these perturbed observers gathered and joined themselves together for mutual protection. No dressing up, no publicity seeking shenanigans. The only person Churchill ever dressed up as was Churchill. Just prose to treasure. Even more impressive when you consider he was untrained. Actually, he was thick at school. My school told me I couldn't do GCS history because I had no aptitude for the subject. So I like this. Even more so because he won the Nobel Prize for Literature in 1953 for his mastery and historical, um, his mastery of historical and biographical description. He earned it. There will never be another one who writes like him. Yeah, I've, I've never read any of his books. Interesting enough, I have. <laughs> He can write. I have got um, some volumes of his history of the Second World War upstairs, which my granddad purchased yeah. from a bookshop in Purley. He's still got the receipt. If people are listening and you want to give something a go, there is like a 1960s compilation of the first four things he wrote. So one is the Metaboli Land Force. Um, there's the Cuban thing, and then there's um, a couple of bits in Africa and they've all been put together as Winston's early wars or something so and, and it's like a pound on ABE books um, and you'll just get it is pure poetry and from the very beginning when he's in his 20s obviously it gets better as he writes I mean the stuff that I was reading from the 30s so still pre-World War Two, but yeah you just absolutely no one else will ever be able to replicate that turn of phrase I think it it wasn't taught to him so you can't teach it to anyone else, is my opinion. I mean, he didn't just—he just didn't write—he just didn't write books on the First World War and the Second World War, did he? No. he his history of the English-speaking people took him nearly twenty years. Yeah, and the Nobel Prize comes after that, so it's not factored in. I think it's more for the uh, what comes before. So yeah, they're not even taking that feat into account. I mean, there is currently there's this awesome bookshop near Charlie's house, and she she and I looked at this compilation, and I think it costs like three and a half grand because it's like on vellum and stuff, and it's like a proper mounted collector's thing. But it's all of his writings, and it's two shelves. It takes up two shelves. He was prolific. Um, and yeah, there, there's no way it's just journalism. Yeah, there is stuff in there as well. Like there's the kind of owed to his dad but there is like a multi-volume thing on Marlborough as well and are are these spread you know are some of these pre-second world war yes yeah yeah so the world war one stuff is pre-second world war the the first so the first one um is in situ the the four little african ones which you can say are journalism because that's exactly what they were Um, he couldn't afford to go to war so he volunteered to go as a journalist um, so, but they're in his early twenties. The, his father dies in 1895 and it's pretty much immediate after that. So he's not even 30 when he starts. So I'm guessing it would be sort of fair then to say it, it's not just because of who he became and who he was. No, it, he would still, if you. Yeah, he would have succeeded he, as a writer's historian. Anyway. Absolutely. And he had, he was the most famous journalist in Britain, um, before 
the First World War before he ever got elected to Parliament because of his writing and because it was so good. Um, and as someone, I'm going to have to let her get a word in edgeways because she writes for a living and she is paid to inspire people with writing for a living. And Meryn's just jumping up and down in her chair. It, it, yeah, it, and, and this comes back to the whole point of what makes a great historian. It's not just knowing the facts. It's not just knowing how to analyse the sources. It's not just being able to walk the ground and get a perspective. It's being able to disseminate all of that and communicate with the widest possible audience, whether they can barely read or whether they are sitting on the benches in the House of Commons and they have influence over thousands of us. It's the ability to communicate in writing so that your word becomes the word on whatever it is that you are, are debating or championing. And for Churchill, his his ardent enthusiasm for portraying the past so that it could authoritatively influence the future is something that will never be surpassed. We can challenge him. We can see what he achieved in various lights, but you cannot surpass his approach to the use of the written word. No, and also as well, um, that, so that paragraph I read on the reign of George V, I, I started my George V World War I book with his death to try and get across what he meant to his generation. And yeah, you can say Churchill's wrong now in that we're not going to remember the reign of George V because we know what comes after. We're not going to remember that as the most significant era in the world. But to those people, those men who were born in the 1870s, 80s, 90s and saw flight and saw cars and saw industrialised warfare and George V is one of them they are absolutely swept away by events and it gives them a nosebleed and every single person who wrote an obituary for George V tried to say what Churchill did I mean the Telegraph spend a page trying to get the point across um, and everybody else waffles on and he does it in one paragraph where he tells you what it felt like to be ripped out of your comfort zone in the mid-Victorian era and thrown into the 20th century. He could go from being caustic to being complimentary within the space of half a sentence. That was his edge. That was his competitive advantage when it came to not just recording history, but projecting and uh, enabling others, enabling his peers to shape the future. His mastery, the, the way he was taught rhetoric, the way he was taught to use language, was unbelievable. It was like watching Montgomery go through a training school on doctrine. It was it was like watching Alexander the Great learn how to it, there is nobody who who absorbed it like it, in by osmosis, this command no. of language. It would have to be innate in you as well. I mean he went to Harrow, he was bog standard, he failed multiple times to get into Sandhurst. He was not an academic. And I would argue that the greatest historian, if they meet Merrin's benchmark of being able to communicate to everybody, yeah. they've got to be once in a generation. They've got to be a church or they've got to be a Richard Holmes. They've got to be able to reach the people that aren't on their social level and not in a way that talks down to them as well. And he absolutely had that in spades. So, yeah, we should do a podcast on the impact of his language. Well, I mean, that's presumably why my granddad, who was a, you know, a non-qualified optician in Purley, purchased it, you know. Yeah. I mean, my I I started off by saying forget the politician. So I'm not referencing those fucking speeches that 
the the few um and the uh, we shall fight them on the beach i'm not referencing any of that because it's not in his role as a historian but yeah what meron's saying about his no one because so much of it was natural um and it was an off the cuff education um from life and getting out there and seeing these war zones and chucking himself into it i mean alina and i did a, a, Ch- a churchill podcast i think I, I can't remember who was i got someone to tell her oh, i was spencer doing the boer war and um i got him to tell her the story of churchill escaping from a pow scenario and running after a train and stuff and in her head she's picturing this little fat dude with a with no hair and stuff and I was like no man he was young and fit I mean as we see him as one tiny snippet but what you actually have is a, a huge long life of um contributing to the English language I think not just as a historian I don't know what does Lockie think Lockie must have to read stuff by Churchill I, I do and um Although he talks about <laughs> kind of things going on around very much through the lens of himself. <laughs> but it's sensible time. though when you think about it, because he could, how can he, two years after the war, give you a rounded view of everything that was going through Hayshead? He can't. So if he does it from the angle with himself and with Britain in World War Two, ultimately it doesn't matter. You know, if he, he, if he yeah. provides a point of view, then that's yeah. that's his perspective on it, and that's all that a decent historian would ever read it as anyway. So there's no there's no damage by portraying it or presenting it. No. So. I don't think he ever, apart from with the history of the English speaking peoples um, and perhaps the the Marlborough thing, he never claimed to be writing the definitive history of something um and that his version and his perceptive of it was right i don't believe he ever said that i think he was giving you a perception of it and the one that you were able to give before all the documents have been released and the secrets act has expired and everything so i i think it would be naive for and i don't think he would have claimed that he was i think he would have known as a historian that a hundred years on someone would be better placed to write a definitive dispassionate history of the second world war there, there are places in Hansard where he mentions that our words, my words, will be referred to as a mark, uh, as a mark by which this history will be measured. Plus, he invented he invented the onesie, so you know, there's that as well. I think I think it's actually though his eloquence is actually to an extent a black mark because you see so many people trying to ape him. Yeah, um, and I that am. is how you get wankers like Boris Johnson. Sorry, probably <laughs> shouldn't mention my. My political thing, but um, oh. trying to write history and yeah. failing miserably. Yeah, because you, as much as Boris Johnson, as much as Bojo would love to be Churchill, you know, no one will ever, because it was so off the cuff and because it, like Merrin says, it was absorbed by osmosis and that is why his turn of phrase is utterly unique and poetic and eloquent, um, but also why if you try and imitate it, you're just going to look like a schmuck. I think you're forgetting the biggest leg- legacy of language was a letter to Winston Churchill, 1917, someone using OMG. And OMG. What does the lefty in the room think of Churchill as a historian? Is he on mute deliberately? I've, yep. <laughs> I've been swearing away. I've never read any, <laughs> any of his uh, history books, I have to say. Are you so happy? They are a joy. They are, it's not like I have a whole shelf of Lloyd George things that I frequently have to go into to dig out and look for stuff. And it's a chore where it just never is. Yeah. I mean, the thing about 
Churchill was the man could mobilize the English language and, and send it into battle. That's not my quote. That's somebody else's. I forget who said it, but he had that phenomenal, um, ability to, to turn a phrase as, as Merrin and Alex have said. Yeah. Um, if you want, if you get hold of that great contemporaries book, what it is is a series of short essays and you can just do a bit at a time and Hitler's one, George V is another. He does another one that is relevant to the Napoleonic stuff though. Anyway, yeah, this great contemporary <laughs> series of essays about people that he's come and some of them he's had more contact with than others. Uh, but he's just giving his impressions of them. And that, that one, that Kaiser Wilhelm one, there is such a depth of sympathy for a man that you could have just got away without with going, what an asshole. I mean, he was writing that in 1930. No one wanted to read a sympathetic pen portrait of the Kaiser. And yet the sympathy is there and the empathy is there. Because I think he sees a little bit of his own egomania in the Kaiser as well, which is why he gets it. Um, and I, I think his his utter lack of shame on occasion does his writing um, plenty of favours as well because he's able to talk about that without being embarrassed. Alex, being a lazy person, which of his his books would you recommend I started with if I was looking on Audible? Um, I'm not sure which ones are on Audible. It's got the history of the English-speaking people, the second and the Second World War, and the one about the, the World Crisis books. And uh, my, the World Crisis. Yeah, the World Crisis. Go with World War One first. You'll okay. get a, you'll get a good appreciation of his mastery of language from the first two and a half, two, three chapters of that. But I would say for pennies online you can get this uh Churchill's Early Wars compilation, which is the the yeah. it's all the journalist stuff. Um, in a compilation and it's fantastic and that and the great contemporaries dirt cheap online and um, you can read in little sections uh, one of my mates has got great contemporaries in the toilet because he says he can read one review of a person in the time it takes to do a shit so he literally has it in the toilet and reads one the, the other place to get a good appreciation for Churchill and, and I'm not talking about never you know feel of human conflict funnily enough is Hansard and Hansard is so it's not just searchable, it's readable. And and the minute you you get your head round who's talking and what the what the political and military context is, nineteen thirty to nineteen forty five, why we don't sit and read Hansard as part of our, our just diriger, you know, I'm doing research on, on part of the second or even first world war. Yeah, I mean so actually I used it as a historical source. Holmes, I used yeah, it for all, the book. all of the stuff about um football and the perception of football in the First World War, I went through um because so for people that don't know, Hansen is basically the minutes of the House of Commons or the House of Lords. Um so you know everything that was said by who in the context of the conversation. And actually when they started debating football, I got the transcripts and they're in the they formed part of uh, our argument for saying that football was hard done by. Right, so we have one more to do now that I've completely hogged the floor for ages. Lockie. Yeah. Can you follow Churchill? Well, I don't know. My, my worry going into this was my choice was quite Anglo-centric. Um, <laughs> just <laughs> just Churchill, you're five. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I've just had you and, and Merrin, two incredibly charismatic and, and eloquent women, uh, in full flight on one of Britain's greatest heroes. <laughs> good, good luck. All right. I think my concern is that no one's going to give a fuck. Um, on, all right. The venerable bead. 
anyone yeah, who's done exactly. a history has, has met this guy. The venerable Bede. I mean, I, I, I too, like many of you, have, have put together some criteria. You've all pretty much covered mine. I, as far as the accessibility point, I, my exact words were, don't bore people shitless. So um, that's... That's pretty much what I want. Maybe the only thing that I was going to say on the kind of criteria point that maybe no one else has said is do something new. If, you, if you're going to be a historian, do something new or don't fucking bother. All right. Don't just spew out or work around what other people have done. Bring something new to the party or piss off. All right. That's my. Yeah, Dan Snow. More editing. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not a fan of necessarily of the bringing something new. Does that include dressing up, though? <gasps> well, no, I, I get it sometimes, but sometimes there's an assumption that, especially when it happens on the television, there's an assumption that this is new and therefore they focus so much on the newness, they don't actually tell you that, you know, that it's, it's sort of... Um, so this is, this is going to kind of underpin my argument. And I've already got to follow Churchill doing Churchill, so please don't do me down anymore. Like, <laughs> throw me a fucking bone here, guys, honestly. Right, the Venerable Bede. All right, we're going into the Dark Ages. I'm going to try and illuminate the Dark Ages because they're not really the Dark Ages. I mean, I am going to define Venerable. Okay, that's something I am going to do. Um, it, venerable, it means accorded a great deal of respect, um, especially because of age, wisdom, or character. And within the Roman Catholic uh, kind of concept, it's a title given to a deceased person who has attained a certain degree of sanctity, but has not been canonized. So, so within this person's lifetime, there's, there's been a lot of respect. And, and, and after they died as well, a great deal of respect too. So the Venerable Bede, it basics, first of all, he was a Benedictine monk born Oh, fucking up north. No, um, Sunderland sort of area, um, uh, 673 AD, long time ago. Um, we're closing on the 1300th anniversary of his death. So we, we're going back a long way. He lived in that area as a monk pretty much all of his life. Um, so he knew what lockdown, um, was, died in 735 AD. So he lived into his early 60s. So a probably old boy. He had fame in his lifetime for religious writing as well as historical writing. I mean, translating and summarizing religious texts and making them accessible for preachers and, and, and literate members of the lay community, as well as his history work. And I think that's quite an important thing, actually, to, to gain a measure of fame at the time when literacy standards weren't high by making what people needed to know available. Um, to them was was important to people. Nowadays, he's most famous for his historical work, and his key text is the ecclesiastical history of the English people. It wasn't his only history, and his other works have had impact uh, as well. But this was a five book work of incredible value to us. Now, it provides insight to a period that we well we we know this period as the as the Dark Ages. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it's an illuminating bit of work. It helps us understand subsequent discoveries, as well as itself providing narrative on a really fascinating period. It gives us strong clues as to what we're looking at with things like the Sutton Hoop burial, just as an example of, of things that we know from that period. It differs in some ways from other ecclesiastical histories. There were some um before, primarily, um, I thought uh, Eusebio was a was a Portuguese footballer, but no, it turns out there was an Eusebius who was big in the world of ecclesiastical history. He, he, he's in that kind of bracket. It also 
discusses people as well. So um, people and peoples as well uh, of the British Isles. So rather than lumping the British as one homogenous blob, it does kind of split us up the different Saxon kingdoms. Uh, it dips into geography and landscape of Britain and Ireland. Uh, and it brings the Roman invasion uh, into the story uh, quite early on, which might seem a little bit strange um, for an Anglo-Saxon chronicler to be talking about Romans. But we'll, we'll, we'll come on to that and why that's very important indeed. Uh, actually, it's a contemporary work to the the big epic poem Beowulf, which also gives us insight into Anglo-Saxon life, uh, lordship, morality, all kind of within the context of heroic struggle um, against evil. But B doesn't actually dip into that. OK, it's quite it's quite a separate thing. Um, it, it focuses on what's good. Not, not the kind of evil stuff. It focuses on the good and holy godliness. It's less heroic, a bit more academic and apostolic as well. It is an ecclesiastical history, um, after all, but it adds layers of information in a unique way to the point where if you're going to try and be a scholar of this period, the Anglo-Saxon period in, in, in England, and you're going to try and get to grips with something that's not covered by Bede, well, frankly, good luck. Um, because you'll, you'll, you'll be in a desert. Uh, at least if it doesn't tell you exactly what you want to know then it'll provide direction uh, at least and, and there's other works that applies to as well not just the ecclesiastical history his particular strengths i guess it maybe it's going to sound obvious but it, one of them in particular was pulling various sources together into a coherent narrative uh, and it does sound obvious although uh, i think we'll all agree that <laughs> there's plenty of modern historians who don't do that um, very well. I mean, at the time, people just tended to write facts down. So uh, this style of writing history, where you pull in all the sources and, and then write them up into something coherent, was quite a departure from, from simply recording stuff and a real progress onto analysis. Sources weren't necessarily easy to come by. Um, there were various written things down. Um, in a- Anglo-Saxon kind of tradition, they had a strong oral tradition as opposed to an anal tradition, which we've discussed quite a lot. Um, this evening, but uh, no, <laughs> right. Um, I, 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 right, we need to, okay, problems and limitations because there were some. I'm, I'm going to try and do a balanced kind of portrayal um, of the. He did have some regional bias. Um, he's English. We we all have regional bias. But he himself was Northumbrian. He wrote as a Northumbrian. He <laughs> quite strongly disliked those thugs from Wessex and Mercia. Um, but he did have good, he had enough time for the uh, good people of East Anglia, uh, which I like. He said nice things about, um, them, uh, and about Kent, actually, as well. Although, uh, chapter seven of book one of his ecclesiastical history does, uh, <laughs> rather seem to focus on questions about the extent to which the Kentish people were allowed to marry within their family. Um, and there's letters between Augustine of Canterbury and Pope Gregory the Great, which <laughs> address the question of marriage within the family at length. Um, I just wonder, kind of reading between the lines a little bit, I wonder if this wasn't more of an issue with Northumbria at the time of writing than it was perhaps with Kent in the early 7th century, apart from Medway, uh, of course, where they're all shagging their brothers and sisters anyway. Um, and I guess this sort of leads us on to another um, problem where um, it, it can be a bit didactic uh, at times. Um, there's 
I mean, just even within the kind of, he does acknowledge uh, this, by the way. Um, it, he does say in his prologue to the ecclesiastical history um, that if history records good things of good men, the thoughtful reader is encouraged to imitate what is good. Uh, and if history write, records evil of wicked men, the devout um, reader uh, avoids all that is sinful and perverse. Um, so I urge Kit to read this uh, immediately, <laughs> uh, of course. Um, <laughs> no, well, when he said earlier on, you haven't cut his hair for the whole of lockdown, I was like, what about when you trimmed it and used it to make eyelashes for your seven hair? <laughs> I didn't employ the Chris technique of taking you from the back. <laughs> anyway, I, I don't... Sorry, Lockie. Chris, did you even have a mirror going on or did you just do it blind? I think we know the answer, don't we? <laughs> His mic isn't working anyway, Lockie, go for it. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't want to dent the objectivity too much. I mean, it, it, it's subject to a lot of the same problems that we all have as far as writing. The general view of the scholars is that he was, he was fair-ish at least and, and not, certainly not overly vindictive. Uh, anyway, there are a few omissions. We didn't know, didn't know everything, but I mean, there was not just things that he didn't know. Things they must have done. I, I, I'm, I'm kind of sympathetic on this. You can't write down everything that you know if you want a narrative to be readable, which his work certainly was. You know, I, I mean, I hesitate to use the, the term page turner um, in in regard to this, but especially because I've basically just been reading it as on a trim, translation on my Kindle. But but it does read well, uh, genuinely. I mean, so all right, how important was it at the time of writing? Okay, this is something else. Did it bring something new? Was it valuable? Quite simply, I, I, I can't. I don't know if there's any book that I can think of. So I can't think of anything you know, since this. Nothing more modern that has reframed the national history in quite the same way. It's remarkable. Um, not even forgotten victory by Gary Sheffield. Um, the which is another joke, by the way. Um, it's not. It's not just that. It's a He's a prominent man of letters. He was absolutely a prominent man of letters. He's probably the most learned man of his age, actually, and not even not even just to the British Isles, but actually in Western Europe. And he pulled in sources from across the country and further afield at a time when it was very difficult to do that. He sent representatives to Rome to um, to get uh, to look at historical papal correspondence. Uh, he was able to read in at least four languages. Uh, as well, uh, he had um, vernacular English, perfect Latin, um, decent Greek and, and basic Hebrew uh, as well. And he had a, just a gift for making sense of it all and turning it into something useful. Um, he was able to reframe English history from something that, for, essentially, for the Anglo-Saxons, they thought their history was that they had all turned up from Germany in the 5th century and Hengist and Horsa was the start of their history, uh, the Anglo-Saxon invasions. But he was able to tie English history with the wider world and the Roman Catholic Church uh, rooting the country in uh, in itself, in, in the kind of terrain of the country, but also in the word of God as well and something that had gone on before it. Uh, which is which is remarkable, and that hadn't happened before. Um, so he literally changed history, not in the sense that he changed events at all, but he also he just he brought events together in a way that hadn't been done. Um, he helped people understand their roots. He helped future generations, so us, understand theirs too, uh, as well. You know, we we know about this period because of him. 
in a way that we wouldn't be able to do without him. His work is irreplaceable and invaluable. And, and at the time, it was illuminating and innovative. Uh, and so, you know, the greatest history, historian of all time, uh, the venerable Bede, venerable, indeed. Well done, Lockie. Um, really well done. I, I think even there was argument for some of these older ones, isn't there, for saying that even if they're not the greatest, most entertaining historian, they are so critically important. Like the reason I said anyone who's done a history degree knows who Bede is, because you will have to have read him, because the sources are scarce. To find one that is this good is something really quite special, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. And I mean, I think Lockie made that point quite clear. I mean, he, he is the sort of go-to work for Britain in the Dark Ages, isn't he? Because there isn't anything else. Please, God, let Eleanor not be listening to this. After she did well, it. There are, yeah, no, no <laughs> there are others, but I mean, nothing to the same depth. He's very prolific as well. He wrote, you know, I had a, a, list, a list of the sort of things he, 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 he produced and actually the Ecclesiastes Ecclesiastical history is, is sort of quite late in his life that he, he gets into at least finishing it um, anyway. Um, but yeah, he, he puts together works on various other characters around. So he did the kind of, you know, people who his lives maybe just overlapped with or, or kind of were around during his time too. And, and his body of work is incredibly valuable. I know I focus on the ecclesiastical, ecclesiastical history because, because it's his big one, but it, it, there's other stuff, and without it, would be stuffed. I think. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 a tricky one. But do we then start applying lower standards because things were different in terms of sources? You mentioned his sources, and he had correspondents around the country. But do we know if you know what they provided him with was checked or you know? Um, okay, I mean, in the same way that I look at war diaries, um, I don't have anyone to ask whether the war diary was correct. I mean, we all look at sources and we all make assessments on how believable, plausible they are. And looking at other people who have looked at his sources, such as they survive, he's generally accepted to be pretty much right most of the time. There are certain things that he said where... There's questions. I think especially he, he, he gets a bee in his bonnet about um, the definition of Easter, uh, for example. And in the, in the name of trying to bring the country together, because there were different sort of interpretations for the date of Easter, um, he argues things a certain way, for example, and, and, and shoves people towards a certain thing. So that's what I mean when I, when I kind of tie it with the kind of didactic um side of things as well and and, and regional bias it, it's not it's not flawless but blimey for the time what, what was what was his purpose for writing the ecclesiastical history of the english people yeah it was dedicated to the um the northumbrian king uh, of the day um uh, king carewolf and it, it, it really, it, it actually opens up in, in almost like a historical, like a dissertation almost in which he kind of cites his sources, but also in, in very much a look, this is a work that I've done, which hopefully will help us all understand where we've come from. And I hope it's helpful to you. Um, so it's, it's kind of his life's work. It's, it's a, it, he hopes it'll be a helpful document to, to help people understand where they're from and what's morally kind of right at least. And, and so it's kind of, it's, it's kind of positioned along those lines. Does that, does that answer your question? I'm not sure. 
Yeah, I think so. I mean, nothing, nothing else from me. I like, I like the explanation of the word venerable, and perhaps we should stop referring to Clive as the venerable Clive on this. I'm surprised the Roman Catholic Church hasn't been in touch already and bestowed the title upon him. His face says, I'd rather you let me win this a fucking week when you're judging. (laughs) I've given up on that. Right. Okay. We have finished for the night. Uh, It turned into another marathon, but a really interesting one because we picked it was, I think it's been more challenging for homes, but it's made us go to completely different well for ideas to what we usually plum. (laughs) Everything has a horrible meaning to it now. Chris, is your mic working? People want an answer. Did you have a mirror or did you just attack it? Um, there, there was a mirror on the wall behind me and I was using my, my mobile on reverse photo to try and get a view of what I was doing after, oh, after I really? cut a chunk out of it. Why <laughs> <laughs> there are no words. Uh, I may just take a picture of the back of your hair right now and instead of using the cartoon, just have that. People can look at that for <laughs> three hours on YouTube while they look at the episode. Uh, just Still not the stupidest thing I've ever done. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we will what take is that. the stupidest thing? Yeah, I think done. we need to know now, don't we? There's not enough alcohol for me to go into that story. <laughs> <laughs> well, how about when we actually meet at a real pub, you'll tell everybody? Uh, maybe. <laughs> you will, because we'll just sit on you and like wedgie you until you do. So, right, okay. Chris, if you couldn't have your one tonight, who would you choose as the greatest historian ever? I know that you mentioned Massey. Um, if I wasn't going to do Churchill, I would have done him as well, because uh, he didn't just write about people. He recreated the entire world around them. But then when your publisher lets you have 900 pages, maybe you have to start with that. Um, it's really difficult. Um, there have been some really good ones. I had to, had to think about my own bookshelf and what I, I have copies of. Um, I've got a lot of Churchill because I have to read it. I'm afraid I'm not a fan in any shape, way or form. Um, so it comes down to Richard Holmes. Uh, he inspired me as a teenager to get into uh, military history. Well, my granddad did as well, but Richard Holmes really helped. I've got uh, quite a few of his books. They're really well written. Um, and he's, he's, he was just such a legend. Uh, watched War Walks quite fanatically as a, as a kid, hence not going out very often. Um, and yeah, I, I think Richard Holmes. Luna? You're going to pick yourself? Right, well, that's really self-fucking-obsessed, picking myself. I mean... We all know people that would do that. We all do. We do. So I'm going to I'm gonna have two, only because, Chris, that was really sweet of you, and it was really nice, and it put a smile on my face. And I'd love to choose myself, only because it was very, very nice what you did. But I can't, because that's really self-absorbed. Um so that kind of can I can I do an honor can I be honorary? Is that can that be an honorary choice? Yeah, why not? Well, why not? Okay, it's gonna be I'm my honorary choice. Podcast. Why not? But wait for it. Guess who I'm actually gonna choose? We do the Eurovision thing. No, yeah. you. <laughs> yeah, you. That's what I mean. Eurovision. Just vote for your uh, allies. <laughs> it's gonna be you. Uh, you you swayed me with Churchill, so I'm gonna go down that road. Boom. Kate. Who's feeling very hard done by in Gibraltar right now? No, not at all. Um, I, I just, I think it's a really difficult one because it's so subjective, you know, depending on, for the person we're talking about, depending on the sources they have available to them, 
when they were alive even it, you know and then depending on the area of history that you're interested in then also makes makes you very it's just so subjective you can't you can't choose and also um just because i thought it was so sweet i i'm voting for chris and Marlena. <laughs> Even though she crapped all over Herodotus. Even though she crapped all over Herodotus, I am voting for Chris's choice of Alina because it was just too cute. And it, it, it was brave too, I think. Brave or another one of his stupid decisions. Who knows? Brave. If I if I have to pick one that isn't Churchill, I'm going with Kits, um, because I love that not only is she doing this when most other women are illiterate, but she's also just sitting there writing history of the men she fancies, which if I could get away with that, I'd do that. <laughs> Kit, what about you, if you can't have Anna? Um, so I loved your uh, your arguments for Churchill, but I think the simple truth is you don't get Churchill unless you, you get the historian he read, who was Gibbon. Um Gibbon is the foundation of modern history, so I've got to give it to him. Merrin. Yes. Um, hang on. There's a cream cheese thing going on. Sorry. <laughs> right. Um, curveball here. The Venerable Bede reframed history. So as a historian, he was great. But I'm still going with Churchill. Very Sorry. Nice. I am. And and it's not it's not for the ability to represent history. It's for the ability to communicate history. That's the difference. That's what makes a great historian. Zach, have you turned into a pumpkin or can you talk? No, I'm still here. Um, I mean, for me, it's got to be Holmes. Um, But I think tonight we also got an indication of why there are a number of not necessarily the greatest historians. No offence to people in the room but some truly great historians in here because some of the pitches were incredibly eloquent. Um, and I think our listeners tonight actually got a sense of the fact that whilst we do come down the pub and get pissed and have a laugh, actually this is why we all sit on this Zoom call and we comment on history because we know our stuff and credit to everybody because there were some great, great pitches tonight. I've just realised James isn't here. Did, he, did everybody take me seriously when I told him he was barred? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> well, he won't laugh. He won't laugh at Chelsea again, will he? Heather, what about you? Well, I'm never saying anything bad about Chelsea, that's for sure. No, well, you went and bought a shirt, so that's okay. Two. The second one's on its way. Boom. Um, Wouldn't there in my house thing. anyway. <laughs> um, I have to go Churchill. And that's got nothing to do with the fact that I sent you a box of, like, chocolate. Absolutely not. Just, uh, your own body weight in cabbage, mini eggs, and galaxy, truffle eggs and stuff. Which are very tasty. Thank you, by the way. <laughs> I'm just worried your cat keeps trying to steal them. Uh, Marcus, if you can't have homes. Can I just reiterate? I mean, there were some fantastic uh, pictures tonight, not to name everyone, but Mary and I hadn't heard of... Uh, your person and it was a, a fantastic um oratory uh pitch i love the fact that Lockie went with um the venerable uh bead and you know brave and interesting uh, churchill i don't uh, agree with but just tour de force alex fantastic and there were there were other ones in there um i don't i genuinely can't choose um i i i 
not even saying this. I think Holmes probably is up there. Uh, but I, so I, I declined to answer on this one, actually. <laughs> I spoil my ballot. Clive. I've had the same problem. Every person who's presented, I thought, my goodness me, that's a very good candidate. And quite a few of the people put forward weren't people that I knew of or had read. And so as each person spoke, I thought, oh, my, I ought to change my mind and go with that one. So on that basis, I've ended up with Lockie and Bede because he spoke last. <laughs> <laughs> Boom. Someone was someone was listening, Lockie. Lockie, have you done one? Yeah. Uh, funnily enough, I, I went for one who wasn't someone that I hadn't heard of. I've definitely heard of this person. Um, I love Richard Holmes. Um, and, and, and funnily enough, it's... Um, he was kind of popular and on TV at the time that I was getting interested in military history. And so it's almost like I didn't know any difference. So to hear kind of people talking about the kind of dark days where people didn't give a tuppy fuck about um, military history and, and then being in this kind of world where, you know, Richard Holmes is about doing war walks. I don't, I don't think he's my, my favorite pitch though, uh, actually. Um, I'm going to go for one that I didn't think of in the context of as a historian. That's Karl Marx. Um, and that's not just because that's not just back scratching. That's, um, I, I, I like Clive's chat very much. Thank you, Clive. Oh, what a very merry mixed room it is tonight. Has everyone done one? Chris, have I asked you? Yeah, I have. Yeah. Right. Okay then. So, but it does all come down to one man who, uh, is feels the power coursing through his veins right now. I mean, this has been the trickiest one we've done because it is Ooh. very subjective. As, as I've said, and I've been on my own. I've had no one to bounce ideas off. I've not been able to go for a piss. It's been quite a difficult. <laughs> thing, to be um, and I'm going to probably show up my own ignorance now. By the top three are all basically 20th century. So in third place is Merrin with Gibbon. He's not 20th century. Twentieth <laughs> century and a bit, a bit before that. Not even, not even. A bit before that and a bit before that. Okay. <laughs> I could swap him. I could quickly swap him for. Um, yeah. <laughs> no, 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 swap him. He's fine. So we'll go with him for third, second place Churchill, and then um, first place is Richard Holmes. Yeah, just like yeah. Kate said, isn't it? Completely subjective. It comes down to the history you like um, and the period you're interested in as well as uh, other facts. This has been really good. Well, what I'm going we... to pass it on to Peter Caddick Adams and a few others. I think it, that's genuinely think that was the right decision. And um, it's, obviously I've not got Napoleonic and it's my first time on the podium, but it's all down to Richard Holmes. You, you never even made the podium before. No. I just bash Napoleon. Um, I'm, not here, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not here for a medal. Jesus, I just want to, I just want to dick on one of the biggest dicks in history. Um, no, um, Richard Holmes deserves it. It's all down to, it's all down to him and his amazing way to engage with people. And that's why he's just one of the greatest historians that we will all probably go and watch him on YouTube or wherever you can find one of his episodes and just have a fantastic hour of history and just love it and fall back in love with the subject. Brilliant. Oh, that was quite a nice way to finish, wasn't it? Uh, our weekly programmes, which I think we're all quite exhausted now, aren't we? So we're going to go away for a bit and go to real pubs. 
and uh, I'm going to finish my Easter egg. I know that for a start. And Bertie's going to celebrate that I'm not on Zoom every Thursday night. Uh, so, yeah, join us to, uh, probably in a few weeks when we get together again, uh, maybe, and discuss something else with which we have no clue right now. Um, but until then, goodbye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.